And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when almost anything can happen, and most of the time it does. So let me tell you what's happened, literally, since we planned to go on the air. We had planned toward the end of the show to carry a live launch of a SpaceX uh, Dragon spacecraft, the Endeavor spacecraft carrying crew number three from Cape Canaveral to the International Space Station that was supposed to take place at about 12.21 our time this morning. And the launch has been scrubbed. The reason is weather, because remember, one of the really cool things that Musk is doing is he is landing his first stage rockets back on, uh, uh, of course, I Still Love You or any of the other drone ships. So apparently tonight, the weather in the uh, South Atlantic, where the uh, rocket would come down, is neither fit for man nor beast nor landing uh, uh, automatic rockets. So they have postponed the launch for two days, three days. Well, technically, I said three days. The new launch is in the wee hours of Wednesday morning, which means it's kind of like late Tuesday night, at 1.10 a.m. Eastern Time. We will not be on the air, but if you want to watch it, go to uh, nasa.gov, and you can watch it. And if you are lucky enough to have NASA select on your satellite or cable TV systems, you can watch it there. They start coverage many hours before. They you know, come up with all kinds of interesting trivia, like what those guys were doing. There's a very interesting uh, woman, you know, from uh, the Naval Academy who is going up this time and they're doing all kinds of intriguing experiments. And I kind of wanted to talk about it tonight in the context of our larger issues, which are going to be Bill Shatner and the, you know, second age of space cum the beginning of the Star Trek universe. But of course, uh, we will do that minus a really interesting live launch toward the end of the show. Darn. Anyway, um, for those of you who are new to The Other Side of Midnight, you want to go to our homepage, theothersideofmidnight.com, theothersideofmidnight.com. Click on tonight's banner, which says rather dramatically with a beautiful view of the Starship Enterprise, they're silhouetted against the moon, Um, the mutiny aboard the Enterprise, question mark. What's really going on behind the ugly Takei Shatner Twitter feud? And as we get into the morning, you'll see how that fits into SpaceX and to NASA and a whole bunch of other very interesting stuff. Let me get rid of this on my screen. So um, you're now clicking on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. And right under the guest page, you will see fast links. Click on my name. It's in case you don't remember it, Richard. And it will take you to the first item, which, of course, we're leading the show as we have every, uh, you know, show period for the last month or so with La Palma. And if you look, there's a really gorgeous video. Just click on that little uh, uh, go arrow and you will see a time lapse of La Palma erupting both in the afternoon and at night. And it changes very dramatically. And again, things are not all and well in Mudville, i.e. in La Palma. 
Because remember, when this all started about a little over a month ago, the earthquakes, the uh, what they call harmonic tremors underground, which are caused by lava moving in the dark, moving underground, and you know causing uh, acoustic vibrations, i.e., little earthquakes, were on the order of threes. Now, a few hours ago, I'm sorry, a few days ago, about two days ago, they had their first five point something. If I remember my Richter scale correctly, every number is an increase by a factor of 10 in the amount of energy released. And if I'm wrong on that, someone will obviously correct me. But if that's true, it means the current earthquake swarms are 100 times worse, more energetic than they were when this thing started. That's including an increased production of lava. Again, the real concern, the reason that we're watching this uh, like a proverbial hawk is because worst case scenario, either a big quake or swelling gas pressure from the magma underground, making the island literally inflate like a souffle, could cause about half of the island to slide via gravity into the Atlantic Ocean, raising a tremendous tsunami, which would then race across the Atlantic and all parts of the North Atlantic Basin, extending into the Southern Hemisphere, uh, into the Gulf of Mexico, the coast of Texas, west coast of Florida, and it would produce a tsunami that could be hundreds of feet high by the time it bottoms out on the continental shelves racing at the speed of a jet aircraft, six, 700 miles an hour. So I would like everyone to plug on their phone. Remember, we all have these gadgets now that are like little Star Trek communicators. So you can be plugged into a live seismic network, which will alert you if you're in the danger zone, which is anywhere around the North Atlantic Basin primarily, and into the Gulf of Mexico and the islands in the Caribbean, and even the northern shores of South America. I mean, this is a huge area affecting something like 100 million people. So you want to be alerted early. In Europe, in Africa, you'll have much less warning than on the east coast of the uh, United States. There you'll have between six and nine hours. And the idea is you have packed a go bag and you are set to trot. If you get the signal on that phone that something major seismically has occurred um, at La Palma, you want to get out of Dodge because the wave, when it reaches the shore and crests, well, you've all seen deep impact, right? And the height of that wave. Now, that was because of an asteroid plopping down right off the east coast of the United States. This, of course, is a major seismic event. It occurs uh, having a 500 billion ton mass of material sliding under gravity off the half the island of La Palma. When it reaches the water, most of the mass, it will be traveling something like 200 miles an hour, which is a uh, high-speed propeller craft or a low, low-speed jet, and it's going to create a huge tsunami, what they call a mega tsunami. Again, this is a worst, 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 worst case scenario but it's not zero. So we live in a wired world. You know, there are more important things on the internet than Facebook. So take advantage, have your phone set to trigger. And if you're doing whatever you're doing, when that alarm rings, 
You're going to drop it. You're going to get your go bag and you're going to leave Dodge as soon as possible. So um, that's item number one. Item number two, this is an actual connection to the uh, uh, story that uh, we could not have live tonight in the third hour, the Halloween launch of the SpaceX Crew Dragon named Endeavor with the four new crewmen who are replacing the four previous crewmen from Crew 2 currently aboard the space station. They will be coming back in the next uh, day or so. So that will be another event that we will track and keep you informed of. You can see all this, of course, if you have uh, NASA TV on your um, on your cable or satellite system, or you can go to nasa.gov and you can watch it on your uh, big screen monitors anywhere in the world, even on your phone, anywhere in the world. But it just is a it's really nice to have it on a really big screen because it's 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 not like being there, but it's the closest thing to being there. Says someone who has seen a lot of launches. Item number three. This is going to be part of our discussion tonight. A few days ago, Bill Nelson, remember I pointed out many, many months ago, right after uh, uh, President Biden was inaugurated, that the most interesting thing from my perspective about his forming a new government was the selection of who was going to be the NASA administrator. Well, he selected uh, Senator Bill Nelson, who was a Democrat who served many terms in, in the Senate from the state of Florida. He also, decades ago, became one of the first civilian astronauts going up on the Columbia. And I think, if I remember correctly, it was the flight before the catastrophe that destroyed Columbia on reentry because of ice hitting the leading edge of one of the wings. So Bill Nelson escaped by one mission, uh, as I used to say, buying the farm. More important, Bill Nelson, like Bill Shatner, is one of the few human beings, something like five or 600 out of 7 billion, who have literally experienced what the view is and the um, uh, experience of being in Earth orbit or in space or seeing the world from the vantage point where you can literally see the dramatic curvature and the pitch black sky. And we all know how that affected um, uh, Shatner. Well, obviously it affected Bill Nelson the same way. So when he made this statement at the Virginia, uh, University of Virginia Center for Politics a few days ago, um, I thought it was kind of interesting. In fact, why don't we take a listen to what the current administrator of NASA said so we'll have something to discuss when our guests join us. So let me see if I have all my switches correctly here and let's go. I am not hearing anything. This is not good. Why am I not hearing anything? Well, hopefully, um, it is uh, present when you click it yourselves, but obviously it's not working for us tonight. Uh, that's not a good thing. Are we in Mercury retrograde? <laughs> anyway, um, 
the reason this is interesting is because, and I'll paraphrase what he said, he was asked about um, the Navy pilots, both in the Nimitz and the uh, uh, Roosevelt, who were part of battle groups that would experience uh, the UAP phenomenon, which, of course, is another newer political code for UFOs, pilots reporting and gun cameras recording and radar systems tracking um, objects which are capable of extraordinary accelerations, decelerations, uh, all of that. And uh, he said that he had talked to the pilots themselves and that he was, you know, convinced of the authenticity of their reports. So just to kind of limb out what that means, he believes these pilots and the footage and the radar track and the other instrumentation which reported vehicles capable of stunning performances. I mean, literally diving from 80,000 feet to just above the ocean surface in a second or two. I mean, imagine the G-forces for accelerating and then decelerating so you don't smash into the ocean. And these objects obviously then went into the ocean in controlled flight. They did not crash. So Nelson personally talked to the pilots reporting this. And then he said something really interesting, which in Emily Dickinson's speak, I will then translate. Because he said, um, I, I believe the pilots. I believe the data. Which means we're looking at vehicles, craft, that are capable of doing things that no other nation we hope on earth can do. He said, you know, if this technology is in the hands of our adversaries, meaning, of course, China or Russia, uh, we're in uh, deep doo-doo, as a former president once said. He said he really did not think that was realistic. And that, of course, leaves only one other alternative, that these are vehicles either coming from another destination in space, in the solar system, or far, far beyond, or from another dimension. In either case, bona fide extraterrestrials. So the reason this is important tonight, on the eve of this uh, Space uh, X crew number three launch, is because those, those people are now being launched by the administrator's own admission into an environment where there, because of the data, there is someone else. And if they're not from here, which Nelson seemed to dismiss rather quickly, as any reasoned person who has looked at this information going back decades and understanding the development curve of our own control of gravity. And for that, I would recommend Paul LaViolette's uh, brilliant book on anti-gravity. Just Google Paul LaViolette and anti-gravity, and that will take you to Amazon, and you can pick up a copy. That details with great specificity the dark black history of this government's interest in anti-gravity and control of gravity for both energy and propulsion going back decades to the early parts of the archaic 20th century in the teens and 20s with people like T. Townsend Brown and... Uh, uh, a certain physicist named Byfield, et cetera, et cetera. So tonight, where we stand is that the current NASA administrator has all but said, I mean, he said it in a Dickinsonian way, but he has not said the words, 
we are not alone. There's somebody else up there, out there, down here, playing games with two great aircraft carrier battle groups on the West Coast and the East Coast. And we know that from the time that the original New York Times story broke in uh, around Christmas of 2017, that there have been over 300, that's 300, three plotted by two zeros, additional incidents which have occurred within sight of Navy pilots and radar systems and cameras, et cetera, et cetera. So the current NASA administrator tonight is admitting all but tacitly, you know, it's Washington speak, that we are not alone. And when we're joined by our guests, um, uh, Joe Bookman, among others, is going to have a very interesting kind of parallel story because, well, I'll, I'll, I'll wait to tell you as a, um, uh, what's his name he used to say, Paul Harvey, the rest of the story when we bring Joe on. Again, going back to the uh, Radio with Pictures section was in my section, you want to now look at number four. Is it coincidence, given the administrator's public statements, that a few days ago NASA called for in the scientific community a new framework to give numerical um, values to the probabilities that any specific piece of data indicates we are not alone. Kind of like the Torino scale for uh, impacting asteroids. And if you click on number four, it will take you to the NASA announcement with the details of how this new scale could work. But it's obvious that we're being prepped. I mean, come on. It's obvious that everyone's getting their ducks in a row for when we have hearings in the Senate, in the Intelligence Committee, which was, you know, uh, asked for, requested by uh, Mark Rubio, who is the senior uh, Republican senator from, from Florida. And when those take off, there are a number of people kind of waiting in the wings, including these Uh, Navy pilots who will testify to unbelievable things now to be joined by the current head of NASA, who basically has already tacitly said, A, he believes them, he believes the data, and B, it's more likely that they're not from here, meaning they are true ETs. We are making progress, and it isn't all that slowly which brings us to uh, one of the subjects of tonight which is bill shatner when he returned he went on various television shows including uh, uh cnn and he said William some shatner, really interesting things so let's listen to uh one of those interviews now this is the moment that the star trek this is chris cuomo on uh CNN tonight. Zero gravity after setting a new record as the oldest person in space at 90 years young. And it is what he said when he came back down that made me want to invite him on the show. Listen to this. What you have given me is the most profound experience I can imagine. I'm so filled with emotion about what just happened. I, I just, it's extraordinary. This is life, and that's that. 
and it's in in an instant you go wow that's death that's what i saw that's amazing that's amazing i am i am overwhelmed all these years as an actor and maybe his most powerful moment on screen came when he wasn't acting at all William Shatner joins us prime time. Congratulations, and it's good to have you. Thank you. I watch you all the time. You're a wonderful, wonderful commentator. It's a joy to hear you, and I'm so glad to be on your program. You know, perforce, you need to talk about the dark things that are happening, the dramatic things that can affect us all. Here I am, uh, adding, actually adding to your darkness. I wish I could bring a message of lightness to leaven the the terrible news you keep uh, uh, announcing because it is terrible news, uh, the, the way the country is being torn asunder. And, and there's another even more important fact that, uh, that moved me to tears. Because when I saw the bright blue covering of Earth that's only 50 miles wide and we plunged through to 2,500 miles an hour, broke through it, and then all of a sudden, like a punch in the face, there was the blackness of space, and none of the mystery of the twinkling stars and the galaxies, just pure blackness, because the sun was in my face and the window, and whatever the reasons were, space is cold and, and ominous and ugly, and it really threatens death. There's death there. And you look down, and there's this warm, nurturing planet. We've all heard it's cliche now, vulnerable and fragile and all that kind of thing. But it's even more than that. That's death up there and life down here. And between the two, ruining this planet as we are, we're on the verge (laughs) to bring you the good news that we're at the tipping point. We haven't got time to wait 30 years and and argue about a few billion dollars, which we should, uh, how much should we invest in? in global warming, we're there. And so all these terrible things happening in the body politic is merely a hesitation before we all, I mean, it's just terrible. And I wish I had better news and more entertainment and jokes to tell you. But I was moved to tears by what I saw. And I come back filled with overwhelmed by sadness and empathy for this beautiful thing we call Earth. But I think that there is a promise in the truth of that for you, which I think, you know, it it lets people know what really matters. uh, And that once you're up above it all, literally, and it, you know, one of the members of my team found something uh, that is so cool to me because it's from Star Trek. And it's something that you were saying as a line as an actor. And I want to ask you what the line means to you now that you've actually lived it. I'll play it for everybody. You'll remember the scene when you see it. You know the greatest danger facing us is ourselves and a rational fear of the unknown. But there's no such thing as the unknown. Only things temporarily hidden, temporarily not understood. All decks, stand by. Captain out. We are the enemy. There is no unknown. Only what is not understood in the moment. What does that line mean to you now? Well, you know, all these things are true and they're not true. The cliches are not cliches. What is true is this. It is the human tendency, no matter whether it's your personal life, your business life, your love life, if it's not going going well, it's better. You know, I won't 
I won't talk. I won't. Uh, I, I just. I won't come home, or I'll. I'll be quiet, or I won't say anything. It's so much easier. Burying your head in the sand another instant about global warming and the destruction of the planet is suicide for all of us. And you know, I'm ready to. Not ready to go, but I'm. I've. I've experienced the Earth a lot longer than most people. What is tragic is if our children, especially our children's children, don't have a chance to be part of this beautiful thing we call Earth, and and it's just sad. So it it, it doesn't leaven the terrible things that are happening in Washington and the stupidity of the human beings who put themselves first and not mankind, let alone their country. It is irrational. Are you surprised by how impacted you were? Flabbergast. I, 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 I was sobbing, and I couldn't control it because I was overwhelmed. It was like a death in a life. It was, I couldn't control it for several minutes afterwards. And although I've been speaking about it today because everybody's interested, it apparently went, went uh, uh, viral. It hit the news all viral all over the world. I wrote a song in my album that I've got out now called Bill, which is so far from the moon when I was at my depth of a loss and everything. And I'm sure I just walked on the moon. And I was literally and figuratively so far from the moon. Brad Paisley accompanies me on it. And the irony of me going closer to the moon and having this kind of success is ironic because things are falling apart. And I want, and that's why I was overwhelmed. I wanted to, I, I didn't think consciously of bringing back the message, but I was wondering what, why am I crying? What is, what is, what is overwhelmed me with emotion to the point that I could hardly speak? I'm an actor. I should have been able to control it. I was unable to. I, it was like hearing the death of someone you love and suddenly the world no longer exists but this blinding emotional moment. Well, look, I wouldn't shy away from it because I think the authenticity of it is what is so impressive to so many. You mentioned the song in the new album. you mind if I play a little bit of it? No, please. Here you go. The Apollo mission took off. The planet watched enthralled. But man's greatest achievement made this man feel so small. Sky, stars like little pins. Armstrong took a giant leap while I held the air. Oh, and the morning was complete. I was bound by gravity. What a very cool multimedia presentation that is, by the way. I mean, the whole album, the whole album is like that, and Brad Paisley, among many other wonderful musicians are part of that album and it's getting great reviews but what i bring back from all that is we have to work and we have to work quickly at this we have to unite among many things that we have to unite on it's all just human beings i i i i don't understand the inability to see what's coming our way and how we have to stand up to it with everything that this incredibly strong country has, and we can lead and we can provide. And Bezos' philosophy of getting rid 
of the polluting industries up there is a very practical one. The technology exists now, but we have to do something about global warming now before we all are affected by it. Well, I'll tell you this, Captain. I don't think the gift was the trip. I think the gift is what you brought back um, because you have a conviction about what matters and why that even with your time on earth, I'm sure has never been equaled as it is in your head and your heart right now. William Shatner, uh, I'm not just a fan of your work. I'm a fan of what you've been able to make people think about uh, in your real life. And I wish you good luck with your new album, Bill. Thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you for having me. William Shatner, back on earth after hitching a ride aboard Blue Or. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. I think you're looking with this great reset, you're looking at Mr. Globalone's efforts to move everybody into a cashless society, which, you know, like it or not, that's a one-way mirror, folks. Because at that point, you're not dealing with a currency. You're dealing with a corporate coupon that they can adjust the value of at the push of a button, depending on whether or not you're good little boys and girls. And if you're getting into a system where all of the infrastructure of financial clearing is in the hands of the bankers, that's not a system you want to go into. You look at the West, and more importantly, if you look at what some people call the Anglosphere, the, the Western powers that are English-speaking, the United Kingdom, Canada, United States, and so on. I do think it's the case there. They're using a health crisis really to drive a, a political agenda. And the health crisis itself is largely blown way, way out of proportion to what's actually the case. If you look at what Mr. Globalone is up to, or recreating slavery and the the thing that is unique about slavery is they now have the means of perfecting the capital because now they can literally implant your body with the means to track you it's not going to go away overnight but there are already uh, I think some hopeful signs of cracks beginning to appear in the edifice. This is Joseph P. Farrell. 
and for all the news the media doesn't like you to hear. Tune in to the other side of the news. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, October 30th, Halloween Eve, which is itself the Eve of All Souls Day, which is November 1st. One of the things we're doing tomorrow night is we're going to have a a Wiccan Halloween. We have a variety of witches. We have some reincarnationists. We have our resident metaphysician. And um, it should be a very interesting show. And between now and then, I'm going to look up a couple of numbers. I did not have time to do that today. But I'm, I'm really focusing in on why do we celebrate Halloween when the veil is supposed to be thinnest? Why do we celebrate it October 31st? Where did that come from? How deep in history is that? And is there any correlation with our model of hyper- dimensional physics um i'm gonna have some more stories you know postcards from the edge to tell you tomorrow night there has been more very intriguing communication i'm not sure where it's coming from i'm not sure who's behind it but the content is very um telling Anyway, let me get back to this morning's program because we have some guests and I would like to bring them on now. So without further ado, um, we have Andrew Curry, who is our resident um, artist extraordinaire. He is going to be you know, contributing major sections uh, to the Mars book that we've all been working on for a couple of three. How long have we been working on this? Andrew, do you remember? Uh. <laughs> no, it's been so far back in time we don't remember. And we also have Dr. Joseph Bookman, who is, uh, he ran for Congress a couple of times on the um, UFO banner. I think that's going to be very intriguing. And he has a very interesting backstory that connects with Bill Nelson's comments. He's with us. Joe, are you there? I am, Richard. Super. And Ron Gerbron is with us, our resident generalist, who knows something about almost everything. And the things he doesn't know about, well, they're probably not worth knowing. Ron, are you with us? Oh, that was nice. Yes, uh, <laughs> here we are. And finally, last but not least, we're going to be joined in the third hour because he's shooting a movie by director uh, Robert, Robert uh, Scratch Mitchell. And we all remember how he got his nickname, Scratch. 
God, he sure owes those guys a case of beer. He really does. Anyway, he'll be joining us in the third hour to talk about some developments both on Earth and in space vis-a-vis making movies. Remember Roddenberry's rule. If it's real, it will be either on television or the big screen or on Facebook or in you know social media, whatever, whatever. So, um, gentlemen, uh, let me ask you point blank. What do you think of craft of craft of of uh, Bill Shatner's really dramatic and still ongoing uh, transformation? I mean, to hear him now and to compare him as the actor he was when he played James Tiberius Kirk. I mean, I, I should be pardoned. Hopefully, you will for thinking that this really is the beginning. As I argued with Gene Roddenberry for decades the beginning of the transformation of the fictional Star Trek universe into having it begin for real. Who wants to uh, go first? Joe? Well, I, I was struck by it, I gather, as you have been, and, um, and surprised. Uh, and yet he's speaking a, a deep, uh, profound truth, which is, uh, as you go uh, out beyond the, the layer of the atmosphere and you look at the blackness of space, it, it occurred to him not as an infinite universe teeming with life, a cosmic ocean, but death is up there. And, and he came back and said, maybe that's what death is like. And, and it's also true if you go down, uh, it, you know, below ground, well, that, that's where death is as well, obviously. And, and he talked about this thin blue skin uh, where life exists. And the only place we know you know, without a doubt, or most of humanity knows without a doubt. I think some of us know there's life out there. But at any rate, the, the, most of us know there's this life on this very thin skin that surrounds this uh, ball uh, of deadly uh, rock and, and, and dirt and whatever. Um, and, and a little thin layer of life, the skin of that, and then death beyond that. And, and the, the way that he was struck by that and was able to articulate it, was I think unique in all of human history. I mean, Ed Mitchell did a, did a fantastic job. The Apollo guys all had that that sense of wonder and, and, and uh, connection with with the cosmos. But Shatner brought it back in a in a very special, intimate, profoundly moving way. Because they weren't Captain Kirk. Hmm. I mean, I can't tell you. Well, I'll try. How many arguments I had with Gene? You know, in coffee shops at their home on the set when I visited him at Paramount, begging him to connect the Star Trek universe with reality. And my idea at the time was for him to do, remember how they did that, that time loop thing where they wound up back over the continental United States in the 60s and they had uh, uh, used Episode a Episode titled Assignment Earth. Assignment, well, that was one of them. There was another one which had a pilot in an Air Force aircraft that went up like Mantell and saw this object, the Enterprise in the stratosphere, and he tried to reach it, and Scotty tried to to, uh, rescue him with a tractor beam, and it destroyed the aircraft, but it saved him. And then they had the problem of putting him back in the timeline without changing anything. Well, um, that experience, that, that, that transformation of time and history, I wanted Gene to basically do another time travel thing where the Enterprise goes back to when the O'Neill colonies were just becoming kind of conversation uh, at NASA, at Goddard, when I was there with uh, 
uh, Jerry O'Neill and, and he spoke. I wanted him to somehow mix the fictional Star Trek universe with the reality that space is the only way we're going to save this planet. And he absolutely, resolutely refused again and again to do it. Now, God rest in soul, he would have been 100, you know, a few months ago. Um, Shatner has done it. He has closed the loop. He has brought for those millions and millions and millions of Trekkies all over the world who are at all levels of government and science and academia and show business and cops on the beat and longshoremen and everybody. I mean, who has not seen and been somehow struck by Star Trek? The captain has spoken. It is vital that we pursue this final frontier or else we die. And he said something very important. I was praying that he would say this, which he did in the end of the Cromwell interview. He talked about Bezos' vision of lifting all heavy industry from the Earth's surface into space where it belongs. Well, as I said uh, the last time we talked about this, which was a couple weeks ago, that that idea really is the brainchild of Kraft Erike, my friend who was part of the, um, um, you know, the Operation Paperclip group that was brought over to White Sands and then uh, uh, Alabama uh, Redstone there at the end of World War II. And I actually found a, a, a quote from Kraft in his book, The Extraterrestrial Imperative, which the only one I could find was his literal obit in the New York Times for 1984, which is item number six in my uh, items on radio with pictures. So with your um, deference, let me read what Kraft Erike said, which by way of Jeff Bezos has transformed, you know, William Shatner, Captain Kirk, to where he's enunciating where we've got to go. Quoting Erike, man, the cutting edge of terrestrial life has no rational alternative but to expand the environmental and resource base beyond Earth. Global development, therefore, must be based on an open world concept and include both the development of extraterrestrial resources and the wiser management of our terrestrial resources. This is the extraterrestrial imperative. Its central goal is the preservation of civilization. Did yeah. we lose Joseph? No, I'm here. Oh, there you are. Okay. Well, Shatner has basically taken up the cudgels of that philosophy, of that perspective. He's finally done what I could never get Roddenberry to do, which is to mix the fiction with the fact and open up the Star Trek universe for real. That's very cool. And, and he mentioned moving industry off the planet out to space. That was Erica's um, primary extraterrestrial imperative. Yeah, we must creating a, a plant. The planet then becomes kind of a global park uh, that you go to vacation on. Exactly. And the the exactly. much safer place, this place isn't safe as you started out the I show I mean, can with. you imagine if we'd um, had 30, 40 years of running room to get that idea through Star Trek, through Shatner, through Roddenberry, through writing, imbued in the consciousness of humanity, that this really is the turning point for civilization, the beginning of the Federation? Let me, let, let me bring up another point. Um, uh, a couple days ago, Israel and the United Arab Emirates made a joint announcement. Remember, Israel, 
the enemy of the Arab state, the Arab states, all enemies of Israel, they are now discussing, and that's item number six, the connection of these two nations, Israel and the UAE, in a joint mission to the moon, flying both flags together. And they're literally, uh, uh, you know, days away from, from you know, um, signing this agreement, which in the next, uh, I think, three or four years, will put two spacecraft, each carrying the other's flags, on the lunar surface to begin looking at what's really there. And, of course, as people of this show have heard many, many times, there's so much there that no one has acknowledged. And, again, Shatner has opened a doorway to the beginning of the Federation, which is the convivial connection and progress of multicultural, multi-perspective nationalities under one common goal, which is the furtherance and beneficence of humankind. And it's right there. It's happening in the real news, even as Shatner has undergone his transformative and very public experience. Yeah, the Federation was a Federation of Planets, but the prerequisite. You got to start smaller. United Planet. (laughs) Yes, you have to have something like a United Planet. Remember, it started out as the United Federation of Planets, and then they just dropped the United part, and it was the Federation. Anyway, it it just struck me as as this is the beginning of so many extraordinary things, not the least of which is Bill Nelson, basically saying. Well, they're not ours, guys. So if they're not our stuff, whose are they? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? (laughs) Well, to you and me. But again, we are a small, small subset. The Star Trek universe is not small. The Star Trek universe is huge. Can you imagine if uh, Nelson and Shatner, who both have now shared this almost unique experience, are able to get together and kind of talk to each other at this new level. What could come of that? What could not come of that? I mean, Nelson had a substantially different experience in that he was on orbit, whereas Shatner uh, didn't get even quite as high as Al Shepard. But and yet they're both affected the same way. Well, it reminds me of that old French joke, you know, a man live a hundred years, only take a minute to die. It yeah. didn't. It didn't take five days for Shatner to undergo his transformation. Right. It took five minutes. Now let me tell you something really weird. When Nelson was made administrator of NASA, he obviously has to fill the the you know the offices around him: deputy administrators, head of science, uh, exploration, all that stuff. The one guy he chose to be his deputy, his deputy administrator was a guy that I'm sure most people have never heard of, a guy named Bob Cabana, who was a shuttle astronaut who then became the head of Cape Canaveral, the, uh, you know, the, the Kennedy uh, Launch Center. And you just happen to have a very interesting story about Bob Cabana for the audience this evening. So yeah, Dr. I mean, Brookman, go ahead. Cape Canaveral is a, is, a, is a piece of land. He was, he was the head of the, of the Kennedy Space Center. Right, right. There. And um, so I was in Orlando, Florida. Um, what year? For the 2000, 2016 um, 
Libertarian Presidential Nominating Convention, uh, where we had uh, Gary Johnson and, and Bill Weld, two former governors, Republican governors of very Democratic leading states. And so just prior to that, I'd actually gone down there to do Disney. And um, my daughter and I had a good time at Disney, but we realized we didn't want to spend as much time there as we'd planned. And I had a good friend uh, over uh, at, at the Cape who runs a spacelaunchinfo.com. Actually has a phone number that starts three two one and then it's liftoff three two one liftoff <laughs> and you, you call that and get all the information about launches. He actually lobbied to get that area code assigned there when they broke the old you got to have a zero and a one in the middle of your area code. What a perfect, there's no better area code than area code three two one for for the Cape. Nope. Um, and so um, I'd been talking to him and we wanted to get together and he said, well, you know, the the, the space congress is going on. So what's that? It's, it's a bunch of NASA guys and. They've got a uh, exhibit hall and there's, you know, a lot of people trying to sell stuff to the space industry and Buzz Aldrin's going to be the keynote speaker. And I said, how do I get a ticket? And he said, well, come on over. They actually gave me a media credential because I was writing for a website at that time that I, I qualified for. Which is the best one to have, of course, at these events. Oh, yeah. It's the way to go. And so I'm, I'm like, Anna, you get to meet the um, one. I like to put it this way. Anna, you're going to get to meet one of the first two men to land on the moon simultaneously. Uh, Buzz Aldrin doesn't particularly care for being called the second man to, to walk <laughs> on the moon. They, they landed simultaneously. Yes, they Thank did. You very much. And, uh, you know, he was pushing his get your ass to Mars. But they also had the public school appropriate stickers. They had the get your ass to Mars under the table. He was an exhibit, an exhibit all, but he was also the keynote speaker. Anyhow, not going to turn that down. It was right before the, the presidential nominating convention. And so off we go. And there's a big banquet, and Cabana gives a, um, a wonderful uh, keynote speech, and then he says, does anyone have any questions? And uh, nobody raised their hand. <laughs> no, wait. And, at uh, this time, Cabana was the, the director, director of the Kennedy uh, Law, Space Center. Yeah, yeah Kennedy Space Center, yeah. So um, he calls on me, and um, this was just um, – Shortly after, uh, Hillary Clinton had been uh, talking about the issue. The New York Times had had kind of a first little piece on it. Of course, the the uh, the issue the being Congress. UFOs and reality and all that. UAPs. She was using the term UAPs, which I, I was <laughs> quoted in the New York Times uh, saying that that meant she had been briefed. She didn't come up with UAP on her own. No. Right. No. She would have said UFO. Exactly. So, um, and I had had ABC News to try to get hold of me to to be on a Nightline, I think. Uh, but they, they tried calling me uh, during my dad's uh, memorial service about a month after he died. We had a memorial service. After that, we took off for Disney. And so I wasn't on ABC, but I was, it was very much fresh in my mind. So I said uh, to Bob, um, listen, if, um, if President Clinton calls um, and asks you uh, to reveal whatever evidence uh, NASA here at the Cape has around whether we're alone in the cosmos or not, and about the time I got to that point in the question, there was a groan in this in this banquet hall, probably two, three hundred people there. All very straight laced mainstream people yeah, trying all to NASA, sell NASA pocket. people stuff, contractors, NASA people, oh groan, UFOs. Yeah, and there's the UFO net. All of them had pencil protectors. By the way, you are over modulating a bit. If you can turn down the, ah, the volume. Maybe I'm a little close to the mic. Yeah. I'm leaning in. So because um, I'm excited, Richard. You know. <laughs> So um, what would you have to tell her? So there's this kind of moan. Now, let, let, wait a minute. Let, let me back up. 
When you say President Clinton, you mean the overwhelming assumption in the fall of 2016 that Hillary would be the next president of the United States. Donald Trump would fall by the wayside. And because of the statements she had made to the press, like the editorial board up in New York State or wherever, that she was going to open some kind of serious UFO, UAP investigation. That's the context of this. Yeah, that's where we all were. Uh, you know, the, 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 all the pollsters had 95% yep. Yep. plus odds. And she was the only one talking about it. So, of course. Um, and um, so he, he turns to the audience. He says, no, no, no. This is a serious question. And then he looks at me and says, um, no, it's, it's, uh, you know, NASA's not hiding anything. Um, we don't have any evidence that we're not alone. Um, but what I want you to know is that every moment I was on orbit, meaning him, Bob Cavana, back when he was still flying the shuttle, yep. I was taking every spare moment that I wasn't scheduled to do something to look out a window. And believe me, I was hoping to see a mothership. And, um, and what I know and what we've learned about the size of the cosmos, it's inconceivable that we could be alone. And then he says again, and this is a serious question. Everybody in this room ought to be taking this um, seriously. And it was pretty clear that, that uh, presidential candidate Clinton was taking it very seriously. So my friend came up to me and he said, you know, when you asked that question, I was, I was pretty mortified, but, uh, but that worked out okay. Um, and so, uh, and then people came up to me after that to talk to me about it. Cause I'd had the, I'd had the guts <laughs> right in the heart of NASA. Asked the director of the Cape <laughs> if he had any evidence that he would share with the president uh, uh, that we're not alone. Now, I don't know if he was telling me the truth or not. I, su- I suspect he was, but I also suspect there are those at NASA uh, who know. Well, wait, let me, let me st- why would you say he's not telling you the truth if he's willing to, in front of obviously groans of all the NASA and contractor people, to go against the stream, elevate you, make the question yeah. serious, and then admit in public – that he spent every off hour looking out the damn windows to see if there's anybody upstairs. It's a great question. I have a great answer. Uh, and it's because I, I've known uh, a gentleman, his first name is Roger. And, you know, people can Google it's probably figured out from what I'm about to tell you. But I, I've known him since um, 1975. We met at the National of the Euro Conference at the University of Miami in Oxford, Ohio. And, um, known him since then, and he became a physician, uh, eventually uh, a pilot in the Air Force, and eventually uh, was on track to, to be a shuttle astronaut, and Challenger exploded in, in January of 87, and uh, he aged out, and so he took a position as chief of medical operations uh, in Houston, and in 1998, I got to visit uh, Roger in Houston, so this was, uh, what, 98 to 2016, eight years earlier. And um, I got four minutes to, to pull this together before the break, or maybe I'll leave it with a we, cliffhanger. We can, always, Anyhow, we can continue it after. Yes, I may leave it with a cliffhanger. At any rate, I went down to Houston, and Roger said, uh, what would you like to do? I said, I want to go to the, the room with the moon rocks and handle a moon rock. He said, yeah, we can't do that. So what about a simulator? Maybe we could practice some landings at the Cape. And he said, well, we could do that, but i get in trouble. Is there anything else you'd like to do? And I just said, yeah, I'd like to sit in, the, in mission control. And he said, no problem. So he badged me through to NASA Mission Control, one of the two mirrored rooms there, because sometimes they had two missions to control, one at, at the space station Mir and, and then the shuttle itself. 
And uh, I was just like a kid in a candy store. <laughs> oh, I always wanted to be the voice of mission control. Yeah, I met Sally Ride in one of those rooms, those flight control mm. centers. But it, it was a little disappointing because, you know, it was all built in a hurry. It was, it was low-cost government contracting. And, and architecturally, mission, you know, the building that mission control was inside of was very much like a college dorm. You know, cinder blocks and, and ugly paint. But there was a bulletin board, a government bulletin board just outside of Mission Control that had weekly world news front page of Bill Clinton greeting a space alien coming down the ramp. Oh, I remember that headline. That picture, oh, my yeah. gosh. So we go back to his apartment. The and, weekly world uh, news. Yeah. We go back to his apartment. And he says, so what do you think? And I said, well, it all seemed like antiques. I, I guess the really high tech stuff is is out in the middle of a desert in Nevada somewhere. I mean, that's where the really cool tech is, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, if I knew, I couldn't tell you. And I said, well, you know, it, it's not like we have flying saucers shadowing our shuttles on orbit, is it? So here's the answer to Bob Cabana as well. He says, uh, my friend says to me, Joe, you got to understand to get a job like this, you got to sign certain little pieces of paper that basically eliminate the rights and as much as I might like to talk about some things, even with my own wife, if I were to do so, uh, they would find out. Uh, she, I would go to a place worse than Leavenworth, and she would lose the health care pension uh, benefits, health care and pension benefits. So don't ever ask me about that again. So listen, anybody listening in with the government, uh, my friend Roger does not talk about this stuff, but I, I think they do sign NDAs. You know, I had to sign an NDA just to work for the Gary Johnson campaign, <laughs> one without a, a lot of uh, consequences. But I have a feeling when you get a position like that at a high level and, and those government agencies, probably all of them, maybe not the park service, but <laughs> maybe the rest, uh, there are severe consequences for talking about things you can't talk about. And maybe Bob Cabana had one of those, too. But he could say it's something that ought to be taken seriously. And boy, Bill Nelson just took it to a whole nother level, didn't he? Because he's the uh-huh. current head of NASA, yeah. put there by President Joseph R. Biden, not yep. by accident. Hey, we're yep. at the uh, we're at the top of the hour, so let's uh, let's pause here. My guest this morning, too numerous to mention. We'll do it when we come back. Um, I just am amazed at how rapidly we are reaching critical mass, because what you've now heard is that the two top officials of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. The senior guy, Bill Nelson, basically saying they're real and they're not from here. I mean, what more do you want? And then the other guy, the deputy, who says when he's asked, well, I spent every waking moment at the windows when I wasn't on duty looking to see if they're out there. And then Joseph's personal friend who says, well, if you see that, You sign this stuff, you can't even say it. And he didn't say it, but I'll say it. But you can say it in an Emily Dickinsonian fashion. And so now we have the pieces on the board that when the time comes, and Steve Basson and I agree it's going to be probably toward the end of the year or maybe the beginning, early months of next year when the decks are cleared and public attention And the White House, the administration, and the top tier of NASA can basically begin to answer the question, are we alone? My name is Richard C. Hoagland. You're on the other side of midnight. 
we shall return and wait till you hear what we're going to go to next. Don't touch that dial. and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. It's obviously time for given what we just talked about, my favorite song, Elton, you're on stage. And I'm gonna be high as a kite flies in. I miss the earth so much, I miss my wife. On such a time, I flight. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night to the other side of midnight. Everywhere in the world, in 190 some countries, I've kind of lost track. I think we're on the verge. I think we're on the precipice. I think we're on the brink of combining so many mythologies, so many hopes, so many dreams, so many non-linear systems that the rescue of planet Earth, which of course now is Bill Shatner's major focus and his major goal, bringing to the fore, to the conversation, the plans of my friend Kraft Erica of decades ago by way of a very interesting carrier wave named Jeff Bezos. That yes, if Mars is not the kind of place to raise your kids now, someday it will be. And the earth will be maintained as a place where they can always live. 
If our projections are correct, it all has begun now. And all the science I don't understand It's just my job And we are back on this Saturday evening, grading into Sunday morning. I thought we were going to have a live launch a little later in the program, and unfortunately, those rocket men and women are not going to go up for the next three days. But in the meantime, we have our guests. We've got Ron and Andrew and Joseph, and Keith is with us. Kintia's off tonight. She is having a very, very, very well-deserved birthday party for two days both tonight and tomorrow night in honor of I'm not going to tell you how old she is but she is many many years young and I don't think it's going to be a long time at all things are moving Bill if you'll pardon me at warp nine Okay, Andrew, you are up. Um, how did Shatner strike you? You mean in that interview? Or yeah, in yeah. His... Well, in, you know, the whole thing. The whole ball of wax, well, the whole McGillicuddy, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Well, I know he's been doing the rounds uh, in the media, and I know he was, um, I mean, early on, he made this comment like, is humanity prepared for the, for the um, what did he say, the upcoming uh catastrophe or it was some words to that effect that was like what did he just say and i mean you know i i think he's kind of framed that now in an environmental catastrophe i think if that if i'm reading it correctly um you know richard i one of the things i've been doing recently i'll come back to shatner is um i've been um you know just with the sort of chaos and the upheaval that's going on you know everywhere like in our lives and oh you've um, noticed <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I don't want to get really political here, but it there's definitely some sort of push towards something. Um and one of the things I've been doing, I just happened to stumble across it in my uh, YouTube feed has been the old Carol Burnett shows. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh, what, what yeah, wonderful. Like I haven't seen she, those in many many years. Oh, Richard, she had Lucille Ball on, and every time I see her, I think of our conversations on the other side of midnight and how Lucille Ball. You want to describe what he, what she what Lucille Ball did just very briefly? 
Well, Lucy, Lucy, to save her marriage, <clears throat> created Desi Lou and I Love Lucy in 1950, I think, 4950, somewhere around there. <clears throat> and Desi Lou, of course, was the studio which basically kept Star Trek alive. It gave it its first home. Uh, when the network wanted to cancel it the first time, uh, Lucy resisted mightily. And without Lucy, you know, Lucille Ball, who's kind of like, uh, you know, she's a very close connection to Robin, uh, which I've described on the show in previous uh, iterations. Uh, we would not have had Star Trek. We wouldn't have had Captain Kirk. We wouldn't have had a Star Trek universe. We wouldn't have the possibilities of mixing the streams, mixing our metaphors, Natalie, and bringing this, the fictional, the mythical, the visionary, together with the practical, with the exploration and and inhabitation of what's out there. And, of course, the huge missing component in all of these discussions is what you and I and the other people on this panel and a lot of our audience knows is waiting, which is the most astonishing, blindly, incredibly phantasmagorical surprise that anybody is going to, to, you know, realize, which is when Bill Shatner says, oh, my God, the Federation has been here because there's stuff out there. And without Star Trek, we would not be having this leg up on the political machinations of turning that inquiry, that fictional five-year mission, finally into reality. Yeah, and no, you're exactly right. Um, but with um, Carol Burnett, just to come back to my little aside here. Another one of the CBS things, alum, yes. <laughs> well, one of the things she said uh, a number of times, like she would have this period of time where she'd turn the lights up and ask field questions from the audience you know, before the show would start. And it's very interesting, actually, to see the, the audience. But anyhow, I don't want to go down memory road. But she would be asked about pollution, and she would talk about pollution, that being sort of um, America and the world's you know, number one issue in the 70s, because you know, a lot of these shows came – I think most of it was in the 70s. Um, and you know, so fast forward to now uh, with, with Bill's comments on Cuomo's um, show – you know, we're repeating the same thing, and yet we've talked so many times about, um, well, we have some obvious alternate energies that may or may not be feasible, electric, windmills, this kind of thing. You know, it's not – a lot of it's not workable yet, at least in certain places, but we've talked about the physics that is so blatantly obvious has been known that could correct things so quickly. You've outlined this so many well, times. Well, I've had a I've had a technology before I put it away for safekeeping till I can get it properly, you know, launched in my dining room, which literally gives us the solar system and free energy all on a silver platter, and it costs pennies, pennies. Yeah. And so, so when I hear Shatner speaking and he's saying, "Oh, there's," you know, well, he's talking. About Washington, I mean, he's he's Canadian. I mean, he may have dual citizenship now, but he, Washington is still the, the power source of the world, no matter what. Um, and he's saying, you know, they got to get their act together and da, da da da. But often, all this is sort of heaved on humanity to me, Richard. And you know, again, I don't want to get political, but you know, this whole <laughs> health crisis that we're having to me seems to be morphing into something to do with the environment. That's, that's an opinion, a feeling I'm getting. And we're sort of moving in this direction. And 
I'm what am I trying to say here? I, I it's it's like okay, that was it. And I had this conversation with Ron. So a few times you've alluded to the Federation, you know, you just said what they're waiting for us up there. And a book popped in my head uh, just when you got when you and Joseph were talking, and it's a book by uh, George Leonard from the 1970s called I think it was called um, Someone else. else is on the Moon. My father gave it to me decades ago for for a birthday present, not really realizing how horribly, incredibly atrocious the book was, but it did contain one image that sprung me, springboarded me to look into all the real stuff. Because, yeah, you know, go ahead. Yeah. Well, it, it's this, you know, there was some, some images that Keith Laney, one of our image guys here on the imaging team, a couple of years ago showed me from one of the craters that uh, one of the Apollo astronauts was taking pictures of and deeply within the crater. And he really had to bring this, this stuff out. Richard, and one, I, I can't remember the crater, but one of the craters was like it was being mind it had already been mined. i mean it looked like it it really did so in other words is there someone out there <clears throat> waiting for us and is that person personhood whatever basically saying to the the, the leaders of this planet look we have our own non-interference um program in place this is just a conjecture and we don't really care what kind of system you guys come up with with your world, meaning we can all fall into a global tyranny, which is you know what Joseph Farrell was alluding to in an earlier um, commercial break there, and that'll you know a lot of people feel, or you can have a more democratic um, you know unified planet that's ready to go. We don't care. Just get your act together because the time is coming. And and you know what I mean? Like, is that what we're we're looking at now? Is someone has sort of said, "Hey, you you guys, you you people, get yourself together, find a system that that can present itself as planet Earth," because hey hey, look at the clock; it's running out. Contract's almost over, and we got to get moving. And is that what you know? Is Shatner aware of this? Is he at all? you know, in line with this, you know, via Roddenberry, you see see what I'm saying, um, Richard, like, is there something more already lined up to happen? And we have to get our act together, no matter what the system is, you know, think of um, an alternate universe in, in, uh, in the Star Trek reality, there was that dark on a mirrored universe of like, it was a fascist. Yeah, it was called mirror mirror. Yeah, yeah. So is it it like that? Is it like, whoever it is that's out there? And I mean, I think, here in this show, we kind of get that feeling. I mean, look at the plaques on the Apollo missions on their on their landing craft. What what did it say, Richard? In the little plaques on the on the landing craft about you know we, we came in peace. peace for all mankind. Yeah, so and then signed me, by the astronauts. Exactly. So to me, it's like somebody's waiting for us to get our act together somehow, and then present ourselves, whether it be a dark mirrored universe or meaning here on the planet in terms of order, you know, civil order, you know, political order, et cetera, or, you know, more of a, 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 you know, an open sort of democratic process that, um, you know, we can all contribute individually, but as a larger group, all, you know, so that's kind of my feelings more and more is that we're on some sort of countdown and somebody's tapping their foot up top going, 
get it together, man, and woman, and everybody else. Well, the thing, again, I said during the break is you got the two top people at NASA now who are both in their different ways, Nelson being further down the road because it's 2021, not 2016, Joe. But they're both saying they're out there and they're not ours. I mean, what more would you want to have at the helm as we move to the next level of this? Well, and Richard, it's not just that if I can just cut in. Um, the Pope did something very curious a couple weeks – I think it was a couple weeks back. I, I, I picked up on this in a, um, a blog on uh, Joseph You Farrell's mean Pope website. Francis that uh, the president met with just, uh, yesterday? Yes, yes. And what he apparently did or is – As, by the way, the first stop on his European tour, winding up in Glasgow, where Robin and I had an amazing time for this you know, environmental world summit. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, okay, you just got me thinking about that. <laughs> a lot of things about Scotland. Um, oh my gosh, you, 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 I got derailed yeah, there you, for a second. You, oh, you, you go from the Vatican to the heart of Scottish Rite Freemasonry. Yeah, and a curious stone that's sitting under a throne that mm. you know. Anyways, <laughs> um, stone of scone. Yeah. Well, um, what the Pope is has done or is doing is he is putting into action or putting into the process or putting into gear the sainting of the founder of the of the European Union. Now he's a Frenchman. I, I his name escapes me right now. And and it's a it's a weird, curious thing because saints are usually dead before they're, you know, are people who are sort of elevated to that level usually pa- are long passed away and, and you know miracles are associated with them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this whole thing is very, very strange. Like, why is this happening? Well, let me go. Well, wait, wait, wait. As someone raised a Catholic, it's not strange. It's just totally bizarre. Well, that's what it's I mean. It's totally effing, as Biden would say, bizarre. Well, Richard, let me go as, as um, Joseph Farrell would say. Get way out there on the twig <laughs> of speculation. And I would ask the question, well, who on earth would care about the, Europe, the founder of the European Union Becoming sainted, other than a lot of angry, you know, traditional Catholics. You know, everybody else would go, yeah, okay, whatever, let them play their games. Well, I would say, wait a minute, is this guy still alive? I, I think we he should is Google and find out. Yeah, I'll, then I'll dig up the article too, and we can we can either throw it up later after the show, or people can go and look for it. You have to be dead before you can be saint. I would uh, think so. Yes, well, and but, you have to have manifest as miracles, well, real bona fide, checkable. Yes. You know, through the bureaucracy of the church endlessly, look at how long they, you know, worried about Fatima and those those gals, nuns. Yes. Um, now, when in later years, they were children when they had their apparition. I think you've got to A, be dead, and B, you have to have done something that's defined as a genuine miracle by the church. At least one, well, maybe more than yeah. one. Yeah, and that's why all this is sort of going, huh? It's bizarro but- world. It is, but let me finish. So if this is not for anybody really here to elevate or anoint someone who has put together the European Union, which is a, you know, it's a, it's a body that unifies, right? It's, it's, well, it's supposed to be the United States of Europe. That was the idea. Yeah, exactly. So is this a signal? And we have had these signals from the Vatican a number of times about talking about Hey, we can baptize the Martians if they show up as long as they ask. But, 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 but what, what, what does that mean? 
I presume you're not a Catholic, right? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not. You can only baptize members of the human family, descendants of Adam and Eve. Exactly. Which means ETs are not aliens. They're family. Yeah. And what if this... In the eyes of the church. And what if this strange story that to me seems really, like you say, bizarro, is more about impressing upon the folks upstairs the, the human values of this particular person and the idea of unification and elevating those those characters to point as they come here to say, look at the kind of people we've got that can, you know, that can be, um, you know, uh, constructors of humanity. I don't know. I, it's a, oh, it's a we need dream. to look into this deeper. I, I'm surprised that nobody mentioned this, you know, particularly with, with Biden going to visit the Pope. You'd think that everything the Pope had done in the last couple of weeks and the whole idea of the EU and, you know, our political relationship with France because of the weird submarine deal and all of these things moving in the background. The idea that no news source basically said, oh, by the way, Pope Francis wants to canonize, you know, the, the founder of the European Union. What? I know. I know, Richard. And that doesn't and that's make any sense. Okay, it Ron, does, yeah, Ron, Ron, you obviously have some to contrib- contribute here. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I'm aware of the fact that the Pope is uh, pushing the well, their equivalent of legislation. I, I don't know what church speech would speak would be f- uh, for that word, but the uh, of the uh, canonization of an earlier Pope. When I was sitting here trying to remember which one it is, I remember he served for only 33 days. Oh yeah, Pope reason. John, he, 33 you know tetrahedral days, and the strong suspicion yeah. is. He was murdered. It's um, Pope John Paul I. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Yeah, it's a. Um, but uh, he's he's getting canonization because they they're they're doing the final checks and tittles of uh, verifying his miracle. He did something miraculous at some point that that, that qualifies. There, you were a, whoever said it before you were right. They have a very rigid set of um, strictures and rules about what qualifies you to be sanctified. So I don't know how... Well, a lot of institutions only name things after you when you're dead and gone. The exception being for NASA. NASA Mm -hmm. would do the same thing. That's why there's been this huge controversy over the James Webb telescope, which we're not going to get into Mm -hmm. tonight, but there's a controversy. It's launching in like six weeks, I think, from French Guiana, which is the launch site that's most appropriate for getting it to where it's finally going to go into orbit. The point is that the only exception NASA has ever made to launching, to, to naming something they launched after a dead guy <clears throat> is a current live guy mm-hmm. in his mid-90s. His name is uh, Parker, and he's the name attached to the Parker Solar Probe. He's the guy who decades ago figured out the solar wind, the, the, the you know 500 uh, miles per second blast of materials in the outer corona wafting across the Earth's orbit and Mars and Jupiter and whatever. And for me, the idea that there is a 19.5 degree cycle of sunspots where at the peak of sunspot activity, the, the, the bands on north and southern hemisphere of peak solar activity are 19.5 degrees north and south. Oh, and Richard, speaking of 19.5, so this, this, the reason why this is kind of quiet is because this, this um, action came out on June the 19th of this year. So let me really quickly read just the first paragraph. 
The Vatican and the Pope, Fran- and Pope Francis want to make the founder of the EU a saint. Pope Francis has approved a decree recognizing the, quote, heroic virtues, unquote, of French politician Robert Schuman, known as an architect of the EU. He, he passed away in 1963, actually. The official decision is one of the first steps to Schuman potentially becoming a saint. I'll read you one more paragraph. Having served as France's finance, foreign, and prime minister after World War II, the statesman, statesman became the best known for proposing economic unity among European nations in the so-called Schuman Plan of 1950, which eventually evolved into what is known today as the European Union. In the late 1950s, he served as the first president of what is now the European Parliament. So that this actually goes back to the middle of the So he's year. being beatified for setting us on the road to a unified planet Earth. And that's my point. Which is, is what you'd want to do if there's a bunch of guys out there that say, oh, we can't talk to you publicly until you, get, you know, forget this warring nonsense and get together. Going back to the Israelis and the United Arab Emirates, going to the moon together exactly. with both flags. The exactly. Federation exactly. is beginning. I don't hear a miracle. Well, no, but I, I know, no, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to fight about the details. I, I, whether we agree or disagree, this exactly what Richard said, um, and what you and I have talked about, Ron, is that these mechanisms are being clicked away. It's like it's like a ledger sheet. You know, oh, oh that one's done. Okay, now who, what do we have to do here? It's like putting the. Star it's like a countdown the... clock. You exactly. have to fulfill all the prerequisites, the details of the countdown. Ron, I guarantee you, there will be a miracle found somewhere. <laughs> No, of course. The fix is in. Yeah. So let me yeah, move well, over. I cynically agree with you. Can I make one short comment? I was about just going to get to you. Yes, elevate your, your, your sound just okay. a little bit so you're louder than, than, oh. than you need. Is that better? Better, better. Thank you. No, better? Okay. The um, Yeah, I, mine's very short. You could have gone to me first and it would have, it would have been 30 seconds. I, <laughs> I think he sounded awfully dark. I personally am was not as overjoyed. I mean, I'm glad that he had a transformative experience up there. Everybody seems to when they get the first look at it. Although I think there's an awful lot of video gamers that are going to be less impressed because they've seen it in so many, on so many screens before. But, uh, you know, it's hard to tell. I mean, it's a good thing to realize that we're just the little blue, the little blue marble. But uh, all that stuff that he was saying about, oh, we're wearing the plant. I mean, he immediately went into climate change and, you know, the degradation of the environment and stuff. That's a very non Unless we do what? That's what I was waiting for, and he hit it right on cue. Unless we do what? Unless. That's the operative word here. In other words, yeah, it was negative. Putting the bed. Go ahead. You're talking about putting the Tower of Babel back together, getting everybody on a common frequency? No, 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 no. Industry oh, okay. in space, resources, moving oh. the, the boiler room out of the living room into where it belongs. I, He's I not just offering doom right. and gloom. He's offering doom and gloom on the one hand and solutions, answers on the other, which he ascribes to Bezos, who, of course, borrowed it directly from my old friend Kraft Ericke. And potentially demonstrating to someone's uh, that we can get our act together yep. and do it. Again, under whatever system, whatever system is the most efficient. And there was another Star Trek episode 
where one of the Federation members ended up on a planet where he used the – it was a chaotic planet. And what came to him, Richard? The system of Nazism. Remember, what was that episode called? In, Pattern in the end? of Force. Yeah. And the, and the theme – and we're going to run out of time here, so let me do it quickly. The theme was – there wow, was I a, love it when you guys talk nerd. <laughs> you love it. Okay. Anyway, let's hold it there. We'll pick this up after the uh, top of the hour. We are literally, I'm sorry, bottom of the hour. I've got to look at my clock here. You're on the other side of midnight. My guests are diverse and far, uh, shall we say, afield in terms of perspectives, including politics. But we've got a kind of, a, you know, a federation going here where we put all these diverse points of view under one common umbrella with the agreement that unless we do something different, this cannot go on. And as I've said many, 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 many times, and Dr. Farrell and I are in agreement on this, and I think all, we're almost all in agreement that unless we open up the third dimension, unless we change the closed system of Earth, open system in space, we are not long for this world. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. Saturday night here on the radio on the other side of midnight. And in 190-some countries all around the world, um, we're talking about a transition. We're talking about how do you bootstrap? How do you kick certain people in the delicate posteriors to get their act together and open up the system? Everybody's been kind of critiquing the Billionaires Boys Club, you know, the Musks and the Bransons and the Bezos, uh, the guys that are, you know, taking rocket rides. They have so much money, they don't know what to do with it, so they can spend a few billion here and a few billion there, and they go upstairs for a few minutes of joyriding, totally missing the point. It's not the fault of the billionaires that they're not paying appropriate taxes. It's the fault of the political system, primarily 
when it comes to the Americans, the system in Washington, uh, which may or may not get uh, at some point, shall we say, appropriately fixed. Looks like it's not going to happen on this go around. But behind that is another forcing function, which is the entire panoply of ordinary folks, the people. And I want to call your attention. I want to go back to the other side of midnight and look at radio with pictures. And if you'll look at my item number nine, um, it doesn't have a number. It's right after eight. Uh, the number got missed. There was a recent poll, which when you click on the uh, banner, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the graphic, it will take you to this very interesting poll done by uh, Value Penguin, which is one of those polling services. And they did a, um, a survey of how many Americans would want to travel into space. And they found that half of those surveyed, and 50%, if they had the money, actually, even if they don't have the money, they'd be willing to take on debt to make it happen. And this was updated as of October 5th, which I think is right around the time that Shatner made his trip upstairs, um, uh, which I thought was very interesting because it's predicated on the current bottlenecks of technology, meaning if you open the idea of space travel to ordinary people, is it going to happen with rockets? No, it won't. But if you have a political climate which admits that there is ET technology, i.e. the obvious anti-gravity demonstrated by the UAPs slash UFOs over the U.S. Navy battle fleets, and which will come out in great detail in the hearings, once you open that doorway that there are technologies which can literally, as Ben Rich said, take E.T. home, it totally transforms the economic equation of basically taking things off Earth or bringing them back down to Earth. And so that, to me, is one of the coming revolutionary points which no one yet is going to be uh, discussing because it's not time yet. Now, Andrew, you have a question, which I think is probably directed at the only guy here tonight who has run for Congress twice on the UFO theme, namely uh, uh, Joseph Bookman. Um, why don't you ask the question? So my question is, what would be the best system of governance for humanity to join another larger federation group and launch into a multi-world existence? That's a great question, and it's one I ponder a, a lot. And um, uh, you take me back to the 2008 X conference that Steve Bassett ran. And um, Steve was very kind because I was uh, running for Congress that year. He gave me a VIP fast, invited me out. And in front of the X conference, I said, you know, I'm absolutely confident, and I remain so today, that there are zero uh, Republicans and zero Democrats anywhere on the cosmos except for in this one backward planet. <laughs> but if there's life out there that has the ability to get here, by definition, uh, they have the non-initiation of aggression principle as a core value. Otherwise, they would blow themselves up. Uh, 
Um, now, the non-initiation of aggression principle is sometimes called the foundation of natural law, that law which philosophers look at and say arises self-evidently, kind of like I think, therefore I am. Uh, there, there's a law that says you don't get to initiate physical violence against another sentient being. Second corollary to that is you have the right of self-ownership what you do with your own physical body, this meat bucket that you're having a space mission on planet Earth in, that space suit. You have the right to do any peaceful thing you want with that, anything, except for violating the first principle, which is initiating violence. So I believe that the life in the cosmos that's had sufficient time to advance and develop has those core values. And those core values of natural law are, are what you can easily and naturally derive the entire political philosophy of the Libertarian Party from. It's, it's, it's the philosophy of personal liberty. You don't use violence. You use education persuasion to create social change. So having explained that at the X conference, I said, there's no Republicans. There's no Democrats. I'm confident the cosmos is teeming with peaceful libertarians. And the only place there aren't enough of them is on this one backward planet. So if they're here, I'm looking forward to meeting them. Now, I know that's almost more religious than, than science in terms of what I'd like to believe is out there. And, and, and it, it upsets some people who have had upsetting uh, encounters, abduction experiences and the like. And so they say, well, what about that? You know, I'm scared to death or... Uh, it sure didn't seem like they were all that peaceful and friendly to me. And there's two things. One is we haven't been eaten yet. <laughs> so if they wanted to wipe out Earth and they and they get here across the cosmos, they probably could. And secondly, I imagine they look at us very much like a, a caterpillar in a chrysalis state struggling to get out of his cocoon to become a butterfly. Now, if a human being helps with that struggle, the butterfly dies because it doesn't develop the muscles and strength to actually fly. I suspect that's very much like where humanity is today. But secondly, I have a cat. And, um, you know, my cat got out um, a couple of weeks ago. He got bit. Hmm. It seemed like he was fine. Um, a couple of weeks later, the pus pops out of the side of his face. I got to take him to the vet. Now, there's no way that my cat thinks that going to the vet is a good idea. He's terrified. Uh, and and I, I wonder if that's kind of how some humans at least interact with some more advanced life that might be out there, and yet it's terrifying. I don't know. But bottom line, answer your question, I think that uh, nonviolence is the key to a political philosophy that would attract whatever peaceful nonviolent life is out there uh, to feel like they might like to drop by planet Earth for a cup of tea. And, and we're a long way from that. We got nukes pointed at everybody, thousands of them. We've got people starving to death. We've got all sorts of horror crimes in the news every day. Poor Gabby Petito, who you mentioned earlier. I didn't realize she was at the canyon with the, the monolith. Um, there's a lot of work to do here, really, b before any kind of peaceful, wiser life out there, at least as I imagine it, would feel comfortable dropping by. I don't feel all that comfortable here. <laughs> um, does that answer the question? And I know I went on a little too long. No, no, Joe, I think it's reasonable. But let me counterpoint that with um, Dr. John Brandenburg, who's been on the show a um, number of times. And I remember watching a conference, some sort of um, conference he did, uh, uh, some kind of ET type conference. You know, he writes science. He's a 
nuclear physicist. He he does he subcon he contracts subcontracts for NASA. I think he directly has worked for NASA on which mission was it, Richard? Uh, the well, no, he worked for the Naval Research Laboratory in the DoD on the um, unmanned mission to the moon uh, right. during the first part of the Clinton years, which Bill Clinton is giving a State of the Union speech <clears throat> and never mentions that we've just gone back to the moon after decades with an unmanned spacecraft, totally left because it was a DoD mission. Uh, was that the Clementine mission? That was Clementine, yeah, that's yes. Right. Yeah. In well, a canyon, in a cavern, <laughs> excavating for a mine. Anyway. <laughs> oh, it's kind of circling Richard? back. Richard? Yes? Oh, no, go ahead. No, this yeah, is parenthetical, though. You're just talking about, talking about Clinton. In the movie Contact, what speech was Clinton giving that they took pieces of to use for his part in the movie? Oh, it was the ALH uh, 88001, whatever, the meteorite that the guys in Houston, the scientists, uh, were trying to figure out if it actually contained bioactive materials, fossilized annelid worms and stuff like that. And that was, ah. the, that was the speech, literally the Clinton speech on the <clears throat> front lawn of the White House that they very cleverly edited to make it fit into the movie. Yeah, they had those microscopic x-rays of things that looked like tiny worms. Do you know those things were sent to me as a leak days before the damn press conference? Huh. And I was too stupid to know what I was looking at because they didn't give me a cheat sheet. They just sent them. Like I would know, you know, when someone went in Houston and literally Xeroxed uh, the guy's, you know, um, um, slide slideshow. In those days, it was view graphs. And they sent them to me. In in uh, Weehawken, New Jersey, a week before the big reveal, the big announcement, and I was too damn stupid because they didn't, you know, there was no briefing material. It was just these microscopic microscopic photographs that appeared with no captions and no reference and no context. If you're going to leak, guys, you got to give someone a cheat sheet. <laughs> Mike, I introduced another blade on the fan. Here. Yeah, by all uh, means. The uh, I was looking at yeah I was something that was said earlier about uh, well when you were talking about moving industry into space I remembered that the uh, quote from Charles Fort, um, the infamous Charles Fort, uh, which is a whole paragraph. I said I should dig that out because I remember part in there he's rambling on sort of about the people that don't live here that have an interest in this planet and he talks about gleaming cities of steel in space really you know he's talking about that yeah and it's uh, yeah you've heard it before richard but it's just you said you hadn't run across it before i gave it to you but instead i found a quote from the uh patron saint of uh all luddites i would say <laughs> you know Malthus? i.e people that don't like which should fit in here no Plotus from a, from one of his plays called The Woman from Boeotia, wherein the speaker was not pleased with the increased reckoning of time. It's just a few lines. Let me rip through it. It'll be it's easier to listen than to, leave, than to read it. The gods confound the man who first found out how to distinguish hours. Confound him, too, who in this place set up a sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small portions. When I was a boy, my belly was my only sundial. 
one more sure, truer, and more exact than any of them. This dial told me when was proper time to go to dinner, when I had ought to eat. But nowadays, why, even when I have, I can't fall to unless the sun gives leave. The town's so full of these confounded dials, the greatest part of the inhabitants, shrunk up with hunger, crawl along the streets. And I thought, you know, that's kind of a technical stubbornness that uh, it may have something to do with the problem that many people have at seeing the obvious places on places like Mars. You know, that's why they don't want to make the leap. You know, it's not comfortable. Uh, it's uh, and it's very it's very hard to deal with, in my opinion. So you're you know, not because they're afraid of anything. They're just grumpy. Huh? Well, you're referencing this idea that was decrying the invention of clocks, i.e. sundials. Sundials. In, sundials. Yeah, into, not, into not you know, segregating days and hours, minutes and all that. And you're equating that with people who can't see extraterrestrial technolo- technology or architecture in other worlds. I, I'm, what am I missing? Because I'm I missing something. I, I think it's a similar sort of shock value, and they, they're unwilling to go there because that when you accept the idea that there is a that there are time zones, well, we haven't had time zones uh, until the American West, but the uh, uh, when you accept the idea that time can be parsed and counted that way, then uh, it has it changes your whole lifestyle. I mean, I remember being in uh, the Republic of South Africa before uptide ended. And during those days, it was perfectly nice cities, clean apartments, friendly people, all that stuff. But hardly anybody had a television because they they restricted outside access to bothersome information from the rest of the world that might affect ah. them politically, right? So you go in their house, and the house was laid out completely differently. Didn't have the room with the TV, hmm. which most places did in the 60s. You know, they didn't have it. They had a sitting room. You know, set up so that you could have tea or maybe play cards or discuss a book club. It was completely different and very, very strange. So I, I think it's that they're referring to that kind of transition. You know, if you have to put a clock up in your house then uh, or a sundial in the yard and refer to it, then you're not in control of your day anymore. Hmm. Well, if you allow that there's aliens out there and that they may have an interest here and we really don't understand what it is and therefore should think about it a lot then that's distur- that's disruptive as well. That's, that's just kind of the way it feels to me. Hmm. We're going to be joined at the top of the hour by uh, Robert Mitchell, Scratch Mitchell, because I want him to talk about a, some major media stuff in the news, not the least of which is this bizarre story going on over the hill for me in, um, in Santa Fe, you know, the uh, tragedy on the set of Rust where uh, Alec Baldwin you know, killed somebody and almost killed, you know, the director. Um, and there's mm-hmm. a backstory and, and Scratch will have some new information. I've got some links up there. Uh, link number 11 is the uh, KOAT, which is the local ABC affiliate coverage of the press conference, which was a very rather bizarre press conference held a week uh, minus a day after the uh, tragedy. And they almost didn't say a damn thing. And I want to kind of ask uh, Scratch about, you know, visioning shooting in space, because if safe set on the ground, imagine the, the double and triple and quadruple checks you're going to have to go through 
to shoot movies in the space station to start with. And then as the Russians are now kind of gleefully talking about on the moon and Mars. So that will be part Mm -hmm. of our uh, uh, top of the hour conversation. Let me go back, Joe, to your idea that the real aliens slash real ETs uh, are going to be libertarians. Uh, What would make, what would predispose you to think that? I believe that's um, a kind of a, a self-evident way that we behave with others who are sentient and intelligent, as, as we do not initiate physical force against them. We don't take things wait, wait. without who, consent. Who do we? You mean the human race? Other sentient beings. Have you um, looked at history lately? That's not the way we behave yeah. at all yeah. and have never behaved that, at I all. I think I do look at history, and I, and I think that is in the long term self-destructive um empires have risen and fallen and ours may as well uh, you take a longer uh, uh timeline and that life that's out there that can travel here and, and has existed for millennia uh either self-destructs or it learns how to behave non-violently i think that's obvious or space i want to so say a couple of other things too let me make one interaction sure. interjection here Otherwise, or maybe space is so vast that you can keep burying your mistakes. I mean, we live in a solar system where the data says there was a great war and the war destroyed entire planets and abraded and stripped others and left gargantuan signatures. They're not here. (laughs) No, because because, because we may be them. So now descended, you know, the fall, the great fall to where we're slowly climbing back up from, as Arthur Clarke would have said, the great primeval slime. But the solar system that we now inhabit has been wrecked. The physics we used to live under has been completely blown. It's, it's broken. It's not working functionally. Yeah. And there's lots and of evidence. I think you're proving my point. Um, so in the long term, if you want to get out of that, you want to get over the next solar bubble, uh, you better learn how to do it nonviolently, or, or you're not going to make it very far before the wheels come off. That seems to be our history. I, I think you've just made my point. I, I wanted to quickly go. So I, I may not stay for the second. I'm going to try to, but I, I've been up for a long time. Two quick things in terms of what's changed. When I ran for the United States House in um, 2008, the Park City Record ran a ridiculing front page article, Immigration Taxes and Little Green Men, Joe Bookman, libertarian with a twist. And KSL Radio made fun of me. I, I had announced my campaign for the Utah uh, uh, as a representative from Utah in the United States House at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. as part of that X conference. And they just hammered me. It was embarrassing. My kids were embarrassed um, when their high school teachers talked to them about it. Um, and I didn't just run on the ET UFO issue. I was running as a pretty philosophical libertarian, as you can imagine, around government transparency. Uh, And I I do think people who have signed non-disclosure agreements around this issue or around waste or fraud or criminal activity, that that those non-disclosure agreements are null and void. They shouldn't apply, and we should have open hearings. That's what I ran on. When I ran again in 2017, and that was a special election because Jason uh, Chaffetz had resigned right after getting elected, so it was an odd year to run. I got virtually no ridicule. And um, was this you know, before the, or after the New York Times piece on the? After, because that was December 2016, ah, right? 
Well, that's obviously why. Yes, and there was the citizens hearing on disclosure uh, where the New York Times ran their first serious piece. They ran a kind of a joke piece early in that week, and they got so much flack, they came back and did a serious piece. That was around May 2nd, 2013. So there was a sea change. And, and this, the member of Congress who, who won that election, um, John Curtis, um, Republican, former mayor of, of Provo, uh, was in my home in July. Um, we had a party here. He came and acted as a representative of the Library of Congress for a project I'm working on. And it couldn't have been any more kind. And he initiated the conversation with me around the ET issue. That's significant. Um, I, just in my lifetime, I'm seeing things that I didn't expect to see around the seriousness of the issue. The other point I wanted to bring up, I know we're getting close to the top of the hour. I don't think it's just about getting pollution and industry off the planet. Um, I think our technology develops pretty quickly, maybe before we get to interstellar travel, where it's going to be safer to live off this planet than on it. You're talking about a tsunami that could wipe out the coasts. I live just south of Yellowstone. We had an earthquake here a year ago. My wife and I were awake talking. Where we live, it was just a minor rattle, uh, like a wind against the house. And she said, what is that? I said, Yellowstone just blew. We're going to be dead in five seconds. I really believed that for a moment. Well, you're sure. And when I called her daughter, <laughs> who was in downtown Salt Lake, I didn't know the direction of the, where the tremor was coming from, but she was much closer to it and totally freaked out early, earlier in the morning. So I think you get off your planet because your technology becomes not only cleaner, but safer on orbit. And then you, and then you, yeah, but realistically, Joe, most people are going to stay on earth. So Shatner is talking to most people who will stay on earth. You got to fix the damn garden. Yes, you do. I think that's what you get interested in doing is you want to make it the place you go to vacation, return the planet to its natural state. Um, I don't know, in the longest amount of time, I would think everybody would like to get off the planet. I love going on road trips. I'd I'd like to get in a ship and, and get out there somewhere. I don't know. In the longer times, you know, 10,000 years, 100,000 years, does, does anybody want to stay on the planet or do they want to get out and fly around and be in a Well, you know what O'Neill said? This was in the 70s uh, when Eric e. was still alive and, you know, was chairing conferences that I was writing things for. He said that it's obvious now that a planet is not the place for a planetary civilization. It, it belongs yeah. in orbit. Now, we've yeah. seen so many of these NASA close-ups of these ancient places that they call asteroids and to my eye and my calculations they're obvious ancient abandoned totally eroded habitats measuring miles in diameter and the lucy mission remember which launched just a couple weeks ago it's on a Mm 12-year mission to go and explore eight of them and they're Mm -hmm. they're basically uh conglomerated in the two uh libration points ahead and behind jupiter at the same distance as jupiter is from the sun it's going to take 12 years to complete this mission with multiple flybys of Earth, but you'll have multiple asteroid encounters spaced over a few months, you know, with long time separated by years. And I'm guaranteeing you at that point, we're going to see that that's where they parked. Those, yeah. those two areas of the solar system, which contain thousands and thousands of separate bodies, those are not asteroids. Those are ancient spaceships. They're arcs, they're habitats, they're hotels, they're Las Vegas's in orbit. They're, and that information will hit the fan just as this groundswell of new appreciation that we're not alone is also going to hit the fan 
beginning in 2017. Uh, 2027, I'm sorry. 2027. Wouldn't that be cool? And what's up with Phobos? Hey, Rick. Yes? Yeah, well, I wish I had pictures of that. Richard, I have an illustration for you. My number six, the numbers are all, you know, scrambled. But uh, one that's listed as number six, which is a picture of uh, 67P taken by the Rosetta mission. Got it. And um, it's uh, that's actually my colorization, but uh, because they have, they're going to release some color pictures in a few weeks. But it's uh, mine's just as good as theirs. Anyway, there was a right at the top of the light section. Okay, that's all one picture there. But if you imagine that's the mouth of Jaws swallowing a surfboard, and right where the white stuff ends, you know, <laughs> back into the shadows. It was super super dark. Brought it up lighter and i said why would they put masking tape back there because there's this rectangular z- uh, zigzag back there then i realized it's not a rectangular zigzag it is a busted out section of hull hull plates hmm. you can zoom it up on the larger version you can look in there you can see what's underneath it and everything else it was uh that's why it was all darkened out because occasionally they are there are obviously artificial holes in things but um, i just then, thought I'd give that little, uh, poor little picture its moment in the sun. And, and I have one question for you, Joseph. Uh, I was raised by Quakers. I'm a pacifist by nature, but I'm one of those people that calls himself a little L libertarian because sometimes you got to put your foot down. Uh, it's just people are people. Uh, can remind me of some, one of the countries that uh, was founded by pacifists or civilizations for that matter. There aren't any. So to assume that the ETs are going to be mellow uh, assumes that they're transcending the real prime directive, which is enlightened self-interest, as Robert Heinlein put it. Uh, yeah. If they have a reason to be here, they'll be here. And I don't think that there's no reason for them. They don't have to think we're ants under their boot heel, but they, at the same time, they don't have to give us any credence or a vote in anything they decide to do if they don't want to. So I, I, that doesn't, that's not quite as friendly. I um, I don't dismiss that point of view. I just I just choose to hang on to mine, and and in some ways, like I said up front about it, it may be more religion than than science or or. I tell you what, we're at the top of the hour. We're going to continue this on the other side. My guests this morning are Ron Gerbron, Joseph Bookman, Andrew Curry, and we're going to be joined momentarily by uh, Robert Scratch Mitchell, and he's going to tell the story of how he got the name Scratch again. For those of you missed it. He's currently a Hollywood director. He's actually on a shoot in the last couple of weeks, and he could only give us the third hour. And we have a number of things to ask him, including safety in orbit or when you're shooting on the surface of another world. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. You're entering the witching hour. Particularly tomorrow night. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. 
join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. Saturday night, Sunday morning now in the land of enchantment. My guests this morning, too numerous to mention, go to the website and you can see their bios and their sterling contributions to the background of this conversation. Um, uh, Joe, yeah, by all means, I was going to come to you anyway because I had a couple of questions for you. So uh, say whatever you will. Well, my point about the non-initiation of aggression principle, which I was careful to include the word initiation, I think also responds to the question I was asked just a bit ago, which is, yes, sometimes you have to put your foot down. So if force or the threat of force is initiated by others, then you have a moral responsibility, I think, and a right uh, to respond in kind. So imagine peaceful, enlightened ETs or other sentient life uh, showing up here on Earth I think we've already initiated a fair amount of, of threat of, of violence against them before they even set foot on the planet. So uh, that may explain some of the behavior that, that looks a little more forceful than this idealistic, and I'll admit it's idealistic imagining, if you want, that in order to travel interstellar distances and sustain it for a significant amount of time, you have to be nonviolent at your core doesn't line up with perhaps all of the evidence as we perceive it. It's just, and it's something I choose to believe. I'd like to believe. I'd like to imagine that we could get there ourselves. Uh, but if violence is initiated, yeah, you, you respond to stop that. And, and maybe uh, using force, that's a little distinct from pure pacifism, which I'm. Hmm. Well, that would obviously take us an entire show in its of itself. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think we have Scratch with us. Uh, hello. Yeah. Hello. We do. Before I go, I'll just say thank you, Richard. I'm going to hit the mute button and listen in to Scratch. This should be fascinating. <laughs> okay, uh, Scratch, we don't need the camera. It saves bandwidth. Oh, okay. No, that's kill, fine. Kill the camera. First of all, um, for those that were not with us a couple of three weeks ago when you were first on the show, give us a thumbnail sketch of who you are and uh, why tonight is very relevant to that background. Right. So I, I guess I come to this uh, with a couple hats on. Uh, you know, foremost, I'm, uh, I'm a filmmaker, and I deal in high-risk environments in filmmaking, both in factual and in scripted. I'm an aerial coordinator, and I coordinate uh, aerial stunts in film and television. I've, I fly uh, film jets and... 
and in my uh, sort of for giggles, I also fly air shows and again, in a, in a high risk environment, close to the ground and flying classic fighter jets and previously a military jet team commander and uh, fighter pilot. So I, I come in that regard, um, you know, in, in light of uh, everything that's gone on in the last week in terms of film and risk and tragedy. Well, it's very appropriate that we have you here tonight. For those people that have been asking me all week, knowing you were going to be back on, tell them the story of your nickname again, please. Oh, okay. So, Scratch, yeah, indeed. Uh, you know, the it's uh, highly relevant. Well, it's uh, you know, unlike the the movies uh, where you get nicknames that are cool and kind of um, glib and whatnot. Usually, for some foible or thing you've done wrong, and it, Indeed, in my case, I was a, as a baby fighter pilot of 24 years old, I believe. In my first couple of weeks on squatter, and I was uh, tasked to go do an air-to-air refueling mission, and I was asked the uh, the uh, the question, uh, "Have you ever done air-to-air refueling?" And I promptly answered, answered yes, and uh, went up, assuming that uh, whatever I found up there in the sky would be the same airplane, the air-to-air refueling airplane that I trained on, and as I approached this big aircraft, I recognized it wasn't the airplane I, I trained <laughs> on and uh, made the assumption that it was the same technique and it wasn't. And I scratched up the canopy with this basket of this. Uh, oh, the, re- the refueling airplane. room that lays up behind the, the fueling aircraft, actually, it's your canopy. Yes, well, I'm more. Or you hit it. I, I hit the refueling room, ah. uh, uh, basket that was hanging out. There's two styles. There's the the boom and then the basket and the hose and uh, flying F-18s. It's a, it's a hose and basket. And uh, yeah, I missed uh, spectacularly and scratched the heck out of a of a you know a brand new F-18 canopy and, and effectively wrote it off. So I was forever known as the Scratch Man after that. You could have died. Well, that's you know, the other side of this. Um, they told me afterwards when I uh, came in thinking it was uh, you know a bad rub that uh, <laughs> I think you should be able to buff it out. They said that I just about uh, took that canopy clean off and my head in with it. So um, you're right; it just highlights you know the 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 risk involved and uh, these sorts of things that it can go from. Um, you know, a got lucky and uh, and get a, a you know fun call sign the rest of your life to could have wow. been you know tragedy. And I presume you sent a case of beer to the guys who designed and built the canopy. Well, uh, more the ground crew that had to change it, because <laughs> <laughs> that saved your life. Well, it did. Yes. Wow. Okay. I wanted you on tonight because we got some breaking stories. First of all, uh, did you have a chance to listen to Bill Nelson's very interesting comments at the University of Virginia a few days ago? I did. Yes. Yeah. It was. Uh, you know. It was. It was interesting, right? Uh, fairly poignant. Yeah. What do you think? Um, you know his his comments were. I think. Oh. Uh, in line with what a lot of people think and even a lot of, you know, people in the forefront of things, you know, being an F-18 pilot. And, you know, I, I know he did mention the, you know, the, 
the incident with the F-18 pilots and what have you. I assume that's what you're referring to. Yeah, I would, yeah. well, as, as, as a pilot, since he seems to rest his newfound courage to admit that there could be ETs on their testimony and their data, as a guy who's partnered with them in the same aircraft, I'm just wondering, A, what your opinion is of who's up there, and B, have you ever seen anything? <laughs> well, um, the first part of that question is, I I saw the videos and I have seen some of the you know the testimony and followed it a little bit, and I thoroughly believe they uh, those were not um, you know, manufactured uh, images or whatnot, and whatever that was, and I guess in a lot in line with uh, you know his testimony. Um, it's undetermined what those were, whether that was a, a foreign, you know, a, a, you know, a terrestrial advanced technology or otherwise that, that can't be, you know, uh, determined from, from that. But I believe there was something. Yeah. But in terms of context, real. does it pass the political smell test that if Iran or Russia or China had a technology that could go from 80,000 feet to the deck in a couple of seconds and not smear the pilot all over the, cockpit that they would be they wouldn't be hiding it and they wouldn't be demonstrating us over battle fleets that they have it and we don't yeah you know that you know who who knows right that's uh, uh completely speculative i i i you know my limited experience with you know top secret and beyond uh technology having been a you know a frontline fighter pilot um, I recognize that what I was exposed to was not the, the limit of what is being uh, developed and what have you. There's, you know, there's perpetual development and research and what have you. I, I you know, have accepted that. So to my mind, is it conceivable that there's something that is terrestrial uh, of terrestrial origin? Um, potentially, I, you know, again, you, you really are, think that. Well, I, I don't believe that that is, you know, 51% that's the case or not. It's not a matter of that. I just believe that is conceivable that uh, there is experimental technology. And, and you know, it's funny because I'm, I'm actually developing uh, a TV series. Uh, you know, it's in its early, early, early stages that sort of uh, explores this phenomena going back to the cold war and and you know is this um you know we're creating we're presenting the questions uh about this whether is this extraterrestrial or is it terrestrial um is it terrestrial um from a you know an alternate uh universe is it terrestrial from an alternate time that's sort of toying with the space-time continuum and or is it indeed completely extraterrestrial and so my mind goes to those possibilities as well in this sort of thing and and this is sort of the interesting part of it because i live in this world of uh fiction as a filmmaker and the art of it as as well as you know being at the you know the front end of of top secret technology in my day um i do find it interesting to play with that fact versus fiction or art becomes reality reality becomes art and so i do find it interesting to play with those ideas um that maybe it's not terrestrial of our present paradigm um again i i 
Well, you know, that was one of the core themes of, of one of the original Star Treks, where the right. Enterprise goes back in time, slingshot around the sun, gravity wells and all that, and they wind up over uh, NORAD, and an airplane goes up to investigate them, and they have to you know, beam him aboard because their tractor beam destroys the aircraft, and now they've got a problem with the, uh, with the timeline. So that's, that's kind of – is this series going to be fact or fiction? Is it going to be – Oh, entirely fictional. Ah. But it, it explores those questions that I think we're all asking about this. If we, if we start with the assumption that whatever those pilots saw was indeed uh, real in that sense, where they did actually see something, they did lock onto something. Well, it's that, not that, that they a... saw it. It's they're ongoing. They've had now 300-plus sure. incidents reported as of last week that, I, that I've heard about. So Right, but you know the, the most manifest and, and visual ones are obviously the ones that date back uh, 15 years or so that we've seen. Well, on. they haven't released the other new, newer data. Come on. But, yeah, well, perhaps. But, uh, but you know, the, the commonly accepted, um, you know, visual representation of it that I truly believe, you know, was a, a real situation. Um, it's just what's the origin of that situation? That's that's the, the subject I'm playing with, and we're putting the context that this has been going on for some time, and uh, we're playing with it in a Cold War scenario where there was even less technology to record this, if you will, and so these encounters, uh, you know, go back a while. So we're just having fun with that series to um, create the uh, a platform for questions. Um, like we all have right now. Mm. Right? Well, if you're lining up people to talk to you with background and be advisors and all that, I would recommend uh, uh, Dr. Bookman, who had to leave us, unfortunately. It's kind of a shame because I think you guys... Oh, I'm, I'm still here. Oh, there you I'm are. Just there you are. In. Yeah. Okay. Oh, good. So where do you think yeah, of this so. new development, Joe? Um, I wasn't listening that carefully, actually, till I heard my own name. I'm sorry. Robert slash Scratch is developing a fictional television series for network. Oh, yes, yes, of course. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just tired. Um, it's very late in my time. That Star Trek episode you were talking about from the original series is called Tomorrow is Yesterday. Exactly, yes. yes. Um, and it's it's absolutely fascinating. It's beautifully um, done. Beautifully done. And, and, and you know, that, that's 1960s TV to imagine what could be created today with today's technology and, and storytelling and maybe in a longer format I'd sign up to watch. So is this going to be a weekly series on network television? Will we see it on NBC? Have you pitched it yet? Or are you still thinking how it will shape itself out? Uh, still writing it. The, the pilot episode and indeed the first se- uh, season is is well developed. The pilot episode is in its you know, probably 10-3 right right now. I'm a co-writer. And, uh, you know, I'll take it, run the gamut with pitching it, which is, you know, the... You know, it's a, a colossal journey to go from uh, idea to um, to a series, uh, you know, getting it greenlit and what have you. But no, I'm trying to craft this in a in a such a way that it's unique and 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 there's a you know there's a vacuum of that type of content I believe out there right now, so that it might actually garner some attention. And and as much as it's fun and a, a fictional television series. Uh, it's really intended to provoke the discussions and and be a uh, you know, a, a discussion board as well. Hmm. So, are you writing it yourself, or have you brought in other folks? Oh, I'm co- I'm co-writing it with a uh, 
you know, a gentleman who's probably far more articulate in, you know, in the matters of ufology and, and what have you. Um, I'm, I'm coming at it from a storyteller's perspective and bringing in um, a, a bed of, of fact and aviation and science and technology that I'm familiar with and bring, giving it an authentic and plausible sounding board um, and then presenting the unknown as a layer on top of that, because what I do find with a lot of science fiction television, it creates the, the it gives a lot of, um, or it proposes the preposterous and there's <laughs> nothing that, that really grounds it in reality. Otherwise that, you know, the rational mind can come and go in question. Uh, and I so don't I'm know. Stargate SG one did a damn good job of yes, being no, you're right, incredibly visionary and grounded at the same time. And and I've you know I've come to know Roland Emmerich and you know the creator of the initial Stargate and so I, I you know it's, I I really do enjoy that but we are dating you know several well a couple decades at this point <laughs> uh, but nowadays um, you know I don't think they have a new show like coming out who is they Ron the Stargate people the, oh uh, I've heard rumors is that is that for real yeah that's it's it's for real, but that it, but we still only have rumors for details. Uh, there's definitely something going on. There um, there's a trial run coming up very shortly. I the I wasn't thinking of this, so I can't remember the date. But they they had an AI program take all the canon of the Stargate um, series, all of them, uh, mushed together, and then using uh, and then it made up a story. It wrote a story, uh, a new oh. Stargate episode, and they've got Amanda Tapping and um, Oh Mike wow, Shanks and and David Hewlett uh, play the ever annoying McKay, and a couple of other people from the show. Uh, oh, Jewel State from the rather brief role she had on Atlantis, and um, you remember her, Kaylee from the from Firefly, and. Uh, Somebody else. I don't, anyway, they, they have something going, and they're going to do a, uh, a live stream, if it hasn't happened already, where they're actually going – those people are going to go into character and read the scripts. No, and they fun. expect half of it to be absolutely hilariously preposterous, but they'll do it anyway. You know, it's just it's to keep people interested, I guess. Well, they did that they, as, as, as a show within a show in some of the later SG-1 episodes. They had this – alien character who oh, sure. basically is stranded and then he winds up in Hollywood, which I thought was so tongue in cheek. And it was so wormhole extreme. Exactly. Wormhole extreme, you know, um, yeah. anyway, you know, um, a scratch. Great, yeah, um, sorry. So okay. you're, so you're writing this and when do you think you'll be able to pitch it? Huh, I think I'm, I'll be pitching it with inside uh, six months. I think uh, I'll, it, you know, developing. These Would things. it be giving anything away if you kind of gave us an outline of, you know, who's the hero and what the plot lines are and what? Well, the, I think the, if, the uh, problem. If a fighter, no, I can give the basic premise of it. If, uh, um, you know, a fighter pilot like myself wouldn't be writing a TV series if it wasn't centered <laughs> around a fighter pilot. So, right, um, what you know. There's our protagonist and um, sort of a, a, a secret experimental cell in the sort of the test pilot world kind of that extended out of World War II. 
um, with some of the developments that were discovered with uh, German technology and it, it proposes sort of a continuation of that experimentation and like we know in in, in our known reality with uh, some of the German scientists that went on to develop um, uh, some of the technology and rocket technology and indeed into our space program, um, it proposes um, you know, I, using some of the, those scientists and whatnot to experiment with uh, further technology in parallel to um, dealing with these encounters that um, they're trying to make sense of. And, uh, so this is a with. terrestrial anti-grav technology secretly developed after the war that then confronts somebody else using the same stuff, but much further along? Uh, it's more um, experiencing this uh, these extraterrestrial as we as it's presented. Um, I'm not going to give the entire plot away, but it's uh, trying to understand it, and there's competing forces trying to attain this technology while experimenting with it themselves. And so there's oh, that uh, is cool. That could be there's, incredibly there's a great question. Well, a great question of where is this from? Is this um, as I described, is it uh, terrestrial? You from... need to get Paul LaViolette's yeah. book. Because my yeah. friend Paul, who's a physicist, who uh, <clears throat> has written the, kind of the Bible on <clears throat> anti-gravity and U.S. secret black ops development projects, all mm. the memos, all the meetings, all the you know detailed letters from T. Townsend Brown, all it is in that book. It needs to be on your bedside table, and every night you need to read a part of it before you fall asleep because it's all the backstory for our efforts to develop this technology right in one, one place. Well, interesting. I'll have to get you to email the, the contact and I wouldn't doubt if my uh, co-writer is uh, familiar with it because again, he's far more versed in this. I'm, I come from it. He's not a, a TV person. See, this is one a, of the reasons yeah. why Nelson can say, yeah. well, it could be one of our adversaries. Because there is this body of knowledge on Earth that this is not an unknown physics. It's just been deep six. It's deep, deep, deep black. It's not known to even most of the political structure of any nation. Certainly not the common person. Mm-hmm. Not people in the Navy. Not people at the level of the CIA. It's so compartmentalized because it's so explosive. But it does exist. So it's legitimate to say it might be a secret program. The thing that I think is the countervailing point of view is if you've been keeping it so secret for a hundred, well, almost a hundred years, why would you parade it in front of, you know, uh, carrier battle groups repeatedly and demonstrate that you've got it and we don't? I mean, it seems silly and counterproductive to reveal a secret that way, which is obviously major intimidating, you know, We've got this, and you don't, and you can't do a damn thing about it. Yeah, and um, you know that's that's I think the the billion dollar question. <laughs> the, Here's some thought. Suppose the um, uh, put yourself in the position of someone from somewhere else, and you come down here, and you're looking around. Uh, already, uh, you set the stage. It's not the same ones that may or may not have been working with government operations down here. Okay, this is somebody else. Well, where are they coming from? If they were coming from another planet, there'd be all those interconnections and possible conflicts that they would have to take into consideration. If they're moving from another dimension, uh, they might not care that much. 
And so the buzzing of the carrier groups and everything else is just them indulging their curiosity about someplace that they don't have any further interest in, uh, as opposed to somebody trying to aggravate or poke the bear. Uh, so I, I just... And Scratch, all nice of these know. scenarios can be wondrously illustrated in a riveting yes. fictional television series format. Well, exactly. And that's what I love about the conversation because, uh, you know, a lot of people read about it or, you know, they see the, the, the sensational aspect of it and, and snippets in social media, but to have a series play with it as all science fiction is intended to do is provoke thought is to dig, you know, another layer down and propose, Hey, this might actually be going on. And uh, let's play with uh, the source of that. Well, you know, I've said this a million times. Maybe you haven't heard it, but you will now. <clears throat> Roddenberry's rule. I hear by the silence you've not heard of Roddenberry's no, rule. No, no, I haven't. I haven't heard that. No. I've... Decades ago, when I presented to Gene my Sedonia data, you know, artificial structures on Mars, that kind of thing, from NASA data, uh, Gene wine and dined me for an entire day at Paramount kill all the phones, told Susan to hold all the calls and keep everybody away. And he gave me the entire day to lay out the case. And at the end of the evening, you know, because it went late, he's sitting there behind his desk. I'm sitting on the couch in front of his desk there at Paramount. And he staples his fingers and he looks at me and there's 16 by 20 images all over the floor of the pyramids and the face and, you know, our analysis at that point. And he says, but Dick, if this was real, it would be on television. And I've now said that's Roddenberry's rule because it was the most important thing that I think anybody's ever said to me. Because if you look at any of the major developments in history, when do they take root? When they become popularized? When they become part of popular culture? When they are accepted by you know majority of, of people? This series could literally be the wedge that transforms from the hoi polloi elite of policy in Washington to where the rubber, or in this case, the F-18 meets the road. By the way, are these guys flying advances beyond current aircraft? Your guys? Uh, is, uh, sorry, in what context are you? In, in, the, in the, the series, series? Are, you, are your guys flying primitive anti-gravity aircraft or are they stuck with F-18s? Uh, this is actually a Cold War series, so it says late 50s, um, and so they're toying with this, and it's a it's a race to get the technology, is basically what's ah. going on, and so is it it proposes that there's visits of unknown origin, whether that's extraterrestrial or terrestrial in nature, um, in parallel to trying to develop the technology themselves. And so it's a it's a a chicken and egg story a little bit. Hmm. Kind of like the TV version of Blue Book. Yeah, I guess, I guess there's a little bit. I didn't watch a ton of that. Uh, well, so you know, as a kid, I watched the original. But um, yeah, yeah I'm not talking. Yeah, I'm talking about the new one with the Game of Thrones guy. Yeah. <laughs> I can never remember yeah. Littlefinger's real name. Anyway, go ahead. But it's you know that's the basic premise of it, and there's a, there's a few twists that I'm not I won't uh, give away right now, of course. 
I, I love the ending of their second season. It just it just cut with no explanation to a warehouse where there's a general or two standing there with, and this volunteer, presumably, uh, airman is climbing into this uh, alien vehicle. He closes it up and it all thumbs up, and he looks very worried, and he pushes the button, and the thing goes whoop, and just sort of disappears. And the one, the one uh, military guy looks at the other one and goes, "I wonder where he went." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, guys, yeah. we are at the bottom. I'm sure they've done experiments. We are at the bottom of the hour, so <clears throat> Ron, hold it there. When we come back, we're going to move the conversation in a couple of other very interesting directions. My guests this morning are Ron Gerbron, Andrew Curry. Um, uh, we had Joe Bookman with us. I think he's probably gone to bed. And we just were joined in the last half hour by Scratch Mitchell, uh, pilot, director, and he's working on a series set a little earlier in time than the events of uh, the New York Times story in 2017 at the height of the Cold War when the mysteries of are they going to get the technology or do we have it and who are these guys showing up? I mean, it sounds really intriguing. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. And Joseph is still up. Joseph, go to bed. Go to bed. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, 2.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. Last half hour on this Saturday night, Sunday morning edition of The Other Side of Midnight, a witching hour here in the land of enchantment. We've been discussing with Scratch his uh, penning of a uh, script for a pilot for a new television series that will kind of grapple with the idea in terms of the uh, UFO phenomenon being reported by the New York Times Naval flyers on both coasts stretching over many, many years that now is the centerpiece of planned future Senate uh, Intelligence Committee hearings. Are they us or someone else? And do we have the 
early primitive version of the same kinds of technologies that we're seeing in our skies and have been for a very long time. And if that's all real, the question is, of course, who is driving them? So back to my guest of the morning, uh, Joseph, I hope you go to bed, although if you're still up and you want to participate, you are free to do so. It, it seems to me, Scratch, that you need to think of one other thing, which is what happens in the context that, you know, your guys get their hands on, let's say, a crashed saucer or a fallen disc or something circa the 1950s at the height of the Cold War and the real problem is, will the Russians and the Chinese get access to the same technology? And indeed, that's uh, that is part of the the premise. It's a you know it's a, a space race of a different sort uh, and technology race. And and you know the 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 idea being that it's uh, you know potentially a source of unlimited power and and potential. Uh, for the progression of the human condition and it to do good, but then like everything in life, uh, one's strength is one's weakness, and could it also be used as a as a uh, you know a force of of evil? And um, you know if it is indeed an extraterrestrial um, technology and observance that. Uh, you know, as a judge and jury to how humanity deals with this sort of technology, um, it might play with that idea as well. Hmm. Um, before I log the, hog the limelight here and ask any more questions, anybody else have any thoughts to ask Scratch about on this? And then we can move on? Yeah, I, I do. Hi, Scratch. Is that Andrew? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, well, this topic kind of touches on, uh, again, I refer to Joseph Farrell, uh, when he sort of says in his books and his lectures that, you know, perhaps whoever is above, at least one group of them, actually aren't that far ahead of us. Um, you know, and he cites some of the classic, you know, so-called images of, you know, ET air, uh, spacecraft and how they looked. You know, rather primitive in the early days. Oh, you mean with the rivets? Yeah, and then as we sort of progress through time, they seem to get more evolved. And it's like, are we really that far behind their technology? If again, if all of this is real. And Ron, you you had some thoughts about this, right? Well, it was just a, it's Doc Brown's ice machine from the Back to the Future movie again. Uh, it's possible that some of it, they're either some that come here are either here for a period of time before they can leave, you know, for some technical reason or political one, who knows. Uh, but they're using local resources. They find uh, what they can do uh, using the uh, manufacturing technology available. You know, like you know, a lot of stuff that would come out of. Go ahead, but a lot of a lot of stuff that would go through a come out of a 3D printer these days did involve rivets and pounding and stuff not that long ago, but the, you know, the fundamental technology was still there. So maybe they've had to replicate or repair some of their craft or something. And that, um, or maybe they're from an alternate reality that's just a little different than ours, but not any more advanced. And they're, you know, they're poaching. Well, that's poaching the, that's, that's, good that's, ideas. Robert, is, is your series going to be based on alternate dimensional guys or alternate terrestrial timeline? In other words, alternate history guys. 
Well, that's that. That's the uh, stay tuned and find out. That's, uh, <laughs> that's part part of the promise of the premise. It's Very going elegant. To propose a number of ideas, and it's going to let the viewer uh, experience the uh, the options. Oh, this bit. could be so delicious! Gosh. Yeah. So, um, Richard, Richard, yeah, Richard one, um, Ron brought up um, something. Um, there's a great scene from John Car of, of all people to talk about in the Halloween season. John Carpenter, the great uh, horror film director, he did a remake of The Thing. You know that? Yeah, the new one. I I love the old one. Hated the new one. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, he did a remake, and there was a scene where they had trapped. Um, Oh, I forget the American actor. He kind of talks like – anyways, he had a mus- big mustache. Anyways, he was – the alien had entered him, and they had sort of locked him up in this um, store shed, this shed. And then eventually when they sort of went through everybody else and all the mess happened, they went back to find um, this guy, Grimley or whatever the name was, uh, and they opened the door, and he wasn't there. Well, what he had done is tunneled underneath the ice, and they discovered that he was building – a spacecraft, like a, a disc, but it was made from, as Ron said, rivets and bolts and wires and available mm-hmm. technology. It was very, it was an interesting um, little side. Or as Spock said, one stone knives and bearskins. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Super. Yeah. Okay. Um, bearskins could fly. Ron, one of the things I want to ask you about is you've been kind of, I presume, following up on the Russians' uh, movie efforts in in the space station, and I sent you a couple of articles and I've got some mm-hmm. some hot news. Why don't you talk about what that director said because I thought it was so incredibly interesting. Basically, uh, guys out there all over the world listening, when they got to the space station, it was so different. Like Shatner said, it was so different than what he thought. They threw away their shooting script and he started fresh. And, and describe, uh, Scratch, what he meant by that. Well, I think that's like a lot of things like we we have an expression even in fighter tactics is like, uh, you know, the the plan is uh, is effective till first contact with the enemy. Mm -hmm. And then then you have to adapt. And I think it's in line with that. And and indeed, in my own experience uh, in film and television, certainly in the factual world where we go to um, study, uh, you know, a a character or scenario that we we've created an idea based on our best knowledge and understanding. We go into the field to document something and we're like, okay, well, we have to, you know, what's that dirty word everyone's using that COVID pivot. We have, and we've been able, we've had to readjust sort of the story on the fly. I think that's very much in line with, uh, you know, the foundations of filmmaking and good filmmaking, good uh, documentary filmmaking is you have to be able to roll with, with as the story unfolds and be able to uh, open your your eyes, your senses, and your mind to alternate understandings of what the story could be. And indeed, I think that holds true with something like this, where they're they're going in with a, a script of an idea, probably knowing that it was only going to ever be an 80% solution. And then in their case, they got up there and it was so profoundly different than what they imagined that they've said, oh, we see so much more potential or what we've imagined might not work the same way. So let's work with what we're actually experiencing right now. And so that that made perfect sense to me, to be honest. Well, what the director said was when they realized they had the freedom of three dimensions, he suddenly found ways of using that third dimension in mm -hmm. shooting scenes 
in ways that did not even ever occur to him, apparently on the ground. Well, and that's what I like and as an aerial filmmaker, aerial coordinator that uh, works in in a gravity-based three dimension, um, I really do like to incorporate that because that's in, in, you see a lot of, uh, you know, like air, airline commercials, for example, they're, it's in a three-dimensional medium uh, air, but most of the imagery is two-dimensionally based um, flight. You know, it's, uh, the airplane flies underneath or what have you. But in what I, what I know in fighter combat and aerobatics, I, I use the, all three dimensions at any one point in time. And so I try to bring that into my filmmaking. Indeed, you know, I have big plans for this series we're talking about and <laughs> even some of the other stuff I'm planning to do. I'm actually just on the heels of returning, uh, flying back today, a few hours ago from a week of scouting for a documentary about the Royal Canadian Air Force for the 100th anniversary and going to be doing a lot of three-dimensional air-to-air cinematography. So I love the notion that he went up there and said, I actually have this truly three dimensions to work with in a non-contained or confined by gravity oh, space. Oh, he, he talked about different planes and different shooting yeah. angles and, you know, his actress with the flowing hair. and zero, I mean, it was all mm. like they really got it and they had 12 days and apparently the entire crew on the station, not just the Russians, but helped them. And so it, it could turn out to be really amazing. Now, one thing you may not know of, uh, a couple of days ago, Bill Nelson, again, head of NASA, the guy who thinks ETs could be real, and has said so in public at the University of Virginia, he was asked about future tourist missions to the International Space Station. Apparently, there is an agreement which has now been finalized where tourists will be able to visit the space station for a period of time, which means, Scratch, <clears throat> you could shoot part of your movie in real zero gravity in the space station, mocked up to look like something very different, and it would be a totally bona fide use of the third dimension. Well, let's let's hope that uh, that that notion is is uh, followed through on because oh, it's of... more than a notion; it's it's actually policy. It was a done well, deal. And my old friend, Marsha Hunt, who is the um, uh, AP science reporter, she got him to be very specific about the areas that the tourists will be allowed to interfere with and those that they won't and how they're going to be handled and how they're going to have minders. No, this is this is already a done deal. You just got, got to get in the queue. Yeah, well, sign me up. That's why I stay fit and, and healthy. It's, um, I'm ready to go. Come on. If Bill Shatner can go, you can go. I'm convinced I can go. <laughs> hey, Scratch. Yeah. Scratch. This yeah. is Ron. Can I ask you can I ask you a film question? You were talking about film stuff there and I just uh, I ran across something the other day and I had no idea that this existed. Are you familiar with that stage at Industrial Light and Magic where they filmed an increasing amount of stuff because it's got these gigantic, unbelievably large uh, video displays, you know, on all sides? So they can uh, do literally three-dimensional filming. Yes, uh, Have very you heard familiar. About that? Yeah, um, very yeah. familiar. Um, in fact, I've Incredible been technology. involved in trying to bring that technology here to Vancouver, and um, and so I, I wow. became quite smart with them. I've worked with some of the some really smart folks and uh, about the development of that technology, and it is 
it is a game changer. It's, you know, it's a, in some cases, it's a revolution in filmmaking technology. What was that movie that was shot a few years uh, ago went- with, with Angelina Jolie, Captain um, something tomorrow or whatever? Oh. I- Oh, Sky, Ca- Sky Captain, Captain and, the World yeah, of Tomorrow. and the World of Tomorrow. That was all done with CGI and no real sets. Right. At the time anybody had shot a feature-length film, and it was it, it, the content of the film, by the way, is very important. The script of the film is not trivial; it's very important. But the way they did it was so amazingly imaginative because the actors all had to respond to puppets and broomsticks and whatever. All the background green screen work that built the world around them was all done post uh, post-production. Right. And so if you can imagine that film um, done with what uh, y- y- uh, you brought up, I- I'm not sure you just asked me the question. It was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But imagine then in being in an immersive volume that that's presenting all that information live that the actors can manipulate. Oh, well, and, 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 the and they can source. see it and react to the real world around them. Yes. And wow. so they're, they're basically yeah. in a virtual world acting in that rather than imagining on a green screen what that might look like. And so it's, it's, a, it's a fundamental shift in capability and, and in sort of actor interaction and, you know, all the, the lighting uh, sources that it provides and, uh, in, in addition to sort of visual cues to work with, uh, really is innovative. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they used it in Thor Ragnarok, if anybody uh, wonders what it looked like. That's what uh, they just created everything it's there. It's on my box. hard drive. Mm-hmm. I just have to carve out three hours. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, uh, well, Stratz, we're just talking technical details. Yeah, Scratch, let me move the conversation. We had this horrible tragedy with Baldwin over the hill and you're in the industry and it's like a incestuous family, kind of like NASA, a separate family with same incestuous nature. What have you heard behind the scenes as to what the hell was going on? Well, it, you know, the simple fact of it is it sounds like the, the wrong people were given responsibility for very, very serious things. Um, the armors and the 24 uh, year old girl who only done one other movie. Well, and that's it. And I don't know these people. Um, I do. I have worked with armors and I, I know how serious they take that role. And I know extremely professional people that make that that task, that very critical task, very safe. And uh, just as I do when I'm um, doing aerial operations, which, again, is very risk um, you know, a risky operation that requires lots of experience and requires a, a, a trained risk management approach to it that goes from A to Z. Um, and I, again, I can't speculate on this, uh, this young lady who is doing it, but at the surface, it might present that there could have been more experience there. And, it, and there were indicators. And this is also something as being a human factors um, expert, if I, if I can be that bold, I suppose, um, in terms of aviation and the way humans deal with risk and decision-making, uh, they're, they're usually, before an accident, there usually are indicators that there is something inevitably going to go wrong. There's, 
if anyone studied risk, there's a there's a model that James Reason presented this Swiss cheese model. It's all these imagine these slices of Swiss cheese in three dimensions with all their holes. And if you line up all the holes in just the right way and a laser beam could go through them and that laser beam gets through all those layers of cheese that results in an accident. Well, it's a standard cliche in the aircraft accident investigation community. It is. is, is, There is no single thing that goes wrong. It's a cascade of things like the guys flying, uh, uh, I forget what major air, airline, that were worried about a bulb in the cockpit at, at an indicator, and they flew the damn plane right into the ground. Yes, and and the, or the you know otherwise you hear that a chain of errors. Or, yeah, yeah. Um, and and that's that's what I'm. And the NASA mantra the for decades this. has been no single point failure. In looking at what happened on Rust. To me, there seems to be a cascade of failures leading to the tragedy. No single, because they weren't following any real no single point failure policy. Well, it, it, you're right there. But one of the most important things in terms of systems design in aviation and, and any risk organization is you cannot leave the the single point of failure down to the human situation you need uh, procedures and measures in place so that human error can't be that deciding um, variable or the most important variable so we we always say that human is the last slice of cheese if you will but you never want that all those uh, the holes in all the other slices of cheese if you will to be so wide that the human has to be the the goalie and um, that's what I'd be curious to see. And, and we don't have enough information out to really fully understand it or speculate right now. What's being presented to us has some suggestions that they, you know, there were some major holes in that risk management, um, if you will, in terms of training, supervision. And these are all different layers of that, the defenses, if you will, um, and, and the holes therein. But really, when it comes down to it, uh, you don't want the human to have to be that final deciding thing all the time, that variable. You need procedures and, and in some cases, technologies to um, take the human out of the, the equation so that humans uh, who are highly fraught with error aren't going to expose that, that process. Hmm. I mean, I can imagine trying to do a shoot in space where the penalty for a mistake is death of not only you, but a bunch of other people like, you know, using a firearm in the space station, that kind of idiocy, or even inadvertently, you know, hitting the wrong set of switches in the wrong sequence. Um, Have you thought of safety issues if you ever get to shoot in orbit? Well, I, I think it's, uh, well, I haven't gone there yet in my in my mind because it's only become acutely re- a reality in the last month. <laughs> it's, it's a, um, you know, of course, my mind's been wandering over. But I will say that you, the filming, um, like they probably experienced, has to adapt to the environment and the the protocols that are put in place. And I don't think it can go the other way. And that's what you know. I'll be curious to see what this uh, the rust situation is. Um, 
you were they venturing outside of the established protocols and what have you um, based on inexperience based on supervision what what have you um, trying to you know uh, press press the the issue of you know weapons and losing perspective on what's the important thing the important thing obviously in this case was um, you know safety and and unloaded weapons you take that into space like what what procedures that we're used to on earth and gravity make sense down here that wouldn't make sense in space and that's that's where you would have to go you would have to basically say okay what's our rule set for dealing with things and um, you know with you know some film equipment is very heavy and expensive and gravity keeps that under control down here in space that might not you'd have to secure it even at a physical basic level you know there would be um well wouldn't you want a whole different level of technology for instance film is out you want solid state you want Mm -hmm. small cameras you want positioning you want to think in 3d you want lighting which is you know smaller and more powerful you want in other words there's a whole new level of the support system for filming in orbit in space than here on earth well, that's right. And inertia and all those sorts of things, um, you know, Newton's laws become more uh, acutely present up in zero gravity. And so I think that would be an interesting uh, aspect to play with. Right. And opening up, you know, we had like a really good jib operator and crane operator. They can create the effect of weightlessness and motion like we did on Midway um, and created a sense of flight in three dimensions by the way that the camera had moved with the, the crane and the technocrane and what would zero gravity and sort of that fluid motion and inertia, what would that present as, as sort of an interesting dynamic in terms of filming where you're almost. Well, have you seen that they've got, they've been working on ISIS with these little flying robots, basically our drones with fans in three axes right. and right, they can exactly. position and move and station keep. And you could program in with the computer. Remember, George uh, uh, Lucas was the first guy to basically digitize World War II Battle of Britain air battles and put them into his battle scenes for Star Wars, taken directly from the real thing. He actually programmed in the first primitive automatic camera moves with robots as opposed to camera operators so he could mimic perfectly the aerial dogfights from that era, and it worked mm. obviously brilliantly. Now, of course, we're how many generations of robotics and AI and technology and cameras beyond that? Well, yeah, and you raise an interesting point. I think of you mentioned Star Wars. Think of uh, you know Episode Four, uh, New Hope, with uh, the training, the lightsaber training device, the little ball that sort of works in three dimensions, and when Luke's in the in the Millennium Falcon. Imagine that same sort of thing propulsed in three dimensions and has a camera attached to it. That would be pretty mm-hmm. amazing. Wow. Okay, we only got about three, four minutes here. Um, anybody have some final thoughts? And I'll just take you randomly. Ron? Uh, yeah, I'm just one. Uh, everybody should go to uh, my images and look at number three. Let me double check that. It's a Halloween. It's a Halloween present. Oh, it's a real picture, but it's 
it's uh, yeah. See the one I mean? It's all red and black. Yes, yes, I see it. And it might get yeah, much bigger it, when you um, click on it. Yes, it should. So you're There's not giving it away what there. it is. Oh, that's it. Well, it's in Hale Crater, and I, I I labeled it Halloween Hills just so I could find the file in there. But it's, I couldn't believe how colorful it is. Not the whole crater, just parts of it. Mm. Hale Crater is another one of those about the size of uh, Jezero that um, they haven't gotten to yet, but they've sure taken a lot of aerial shots from it. You know, Robert, one of the things that uh, was really intriguing to me is, and one of the pieces I sent to you, uh, these guys, when, when the director came back, he's already talking about filming on the moon and Mars. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's yeah. really out there, and it's under Putin who's now said, okay, you can't do anything to cover the Russian space program that doesn't get you in you know, some jail. So this is an interesting dialectic that's going to play out because you know because Bill Nelson said two days ago that there's now a stream of tourists on the dotted line, uh, you know, accepted to film in ISIS, that we're going to have the same protocols for Artemis when Musk goes to the moon, when he orbits, you know, his tourists. Uh, imagine the potential for filming close up of the moon. It's, uh, it's, it, it is mind opening. Yes. And you're perfectly positioned. Was that Ron? First explorers. Yeah, I was saying you guys are perfectly positioned to shoot, uh, well, just like the Russian crew that just finished up on the space station. uh, They probably shot so much precious B-roll that they'll be able to rent it out and sell it to uh, (laughs) other filmmakers. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the stuff that doesn't involve the actors in case anybody doesn't know. Right, right. Yeah, and it's... uh, uh, I think that's a financial stream for any of those people to get up there and for, and the moon to be able to zip around the moon, take all kinds of miscellaneous pictures, uh, film stuff. Awesome. Uh, Andrew, final thoughts. Yeah, I think we're primed for change and to point our noses out into the solar system. Kamala Harris's recent little uh, uh, video thing with those kids talking about, seeing craters on the moon. And you know what? Even a friend of mine who's a financial advisor, and he told me one of his goals is to take his family to space. Wow. Well, that... Oh, I should do that. Um, That uh, recent poll that says half Americans, if they could afford it, would go and they would actually mortgage their house to go. Imagine that kind of a political groundswell behind more democratization and more single no single point failure in actually shooting in orbit. I want to thank all of you, Robert and Ron and Andrew and Joe Bookman, who thank goodness went to bed. Oh, you're still there. Well, obviously we have a very captivating program tomorrow night. It's going to be Halloween here on the other side of midnight. And I've got an interesting tableau of people with major diverse backgrounds a lot of them in the hyperdimensional realm. And you'll understand what I mean when you hear tomorrow night. So, same time, same bad channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. <laughs>